Yes, and we're live. Welcome back, Mr. Wood. Thanks for having me. How back, are you, Joe? buddy? Good. It's been a wild year. Um, for people who don't know, Michael was a former. Um, you were for, well. You're never really a former Marine, right? Isn't that one of those things where you're Marine, you stay Marine? I don't quite buy that. Uh, I was <laughs> Some happy Marines to get do. Out. If, I, if I would have stayed, maybe. But uh, For the Marines who agree with that, okay. You were a Marine, uh, former uh, sergeant in the Baltimore Police Department, and you came on the podcast a while back and exposed some pretty eye-opening information about how the, the whole system sort of works in this uh, it's sort of a kind of a closed loop in in Baltimore where the same neighborhoods are having the same kind of crime in the same sort of scenarios over and over again and that was a really important podcast for me and it was a, a really important podcast for a lot of people that listened to it because they got exposed to the inner workings of police departments by someone who was you I mean I was really happy how honest you were about all of it about the thrill of chasing people and uh, all of, all of the, the the cool stuff about it, and we scheduled this podcast quite a while ago, and it's kind of crazy that you're coming in the weekend after these insane shootings in Orlando, and um, I'm absolutely not happy that that happened, but I'm happy as happy as I could be that you're here while this is all going down, and we get to kind of talk about. These these moments, these insane moments that happen, it seems like every few months or so, some new insane moment happens where some person, usually a man, blows a fucking fuse and uh, winds up killing a, a ton of people. I don't know what, if anything, and I'm hoping maybe you'll have some insight, what, if anything, could ever be done to stop something like this? Well... This is where we get into the Mike Rudd's the dirty liberal thing, and and we're going to start talking about gun control because I, I don't know what else we can talk about. Your only other option is to continue a cycle of more and more force upon one another. So what we know for sure, without a doubt, that the path we're on, it is only a matter of time before this record is broken. Right. So what we're doing will result in that. But we have this anti-intellectualism in America that just won't take that evidence and apply it to, to what we know is going to be the end result. Like it, we have countries that have done gun control. They don't have mass shootings. We have mass shootings literally on the daily in America. You just don't hear about them all. So when, uh, mass shootings generally characterize three or four more casualties, something like that. But this happens every day in these cities. Does you, it really? Yeah, you don't hear about it well, when it's a backyard barbecue shooting in the right, hood. Right, right. Yeah, so you could think of it as that. Um, a lot of people don't categorize those as mass shootings because you think of mass shootings as someone going into a crowded place and killing a bunch of civilians <clears throat> or, or innocent people, I should say. Whereas uh, they think of those kind of uh, shootings in the hood as... Rival gangs, uh, people competing over drug dealing territory, things along those lines, which is another point because you were running for you, you wanted to be the head of police of Chicago. Is that still going on? No, I mean, they certainly uh, the corruption went in. And uh, so we could tell that story real quick. What they did is they did a national search. So the laws in Chicago said uh, that this uh, appointed police board 
has to do a nationwide search, and then they give three names to the mayor. The mayor investigates those people and then chooses one. So I predict that they weren't going to go with me. I'm a, uh, too far ahead still. Uh, that, that no one's really ready to take that bite yet. But it's still something we could have talked about and they would have had the opportunity. I figured they would pick that, uh, that I figured they would pick a black guy who was educated and not from Chicago. Uh, that was my prediction. And that's who the police board did cho- choose. They chose a guy from uh, Atlanta who uh, fit that bill to the T. He was going to be. Um, the black guy that represents the police department, but still totes their line. Um, I'm thinking of a word that everybody knows, and I'm mm-hmm. just not saying it. So you can all pick up on what I'm suggesting. You're saying Uncle Tom. Yeah. and and Some uh, people have an Uncle Tom, and he's a nice guy. So if you have an uncle and his name's Tom, don't worry about it. So that's what they're going to look for, something that will f- uh, visually uh, seem satisfying. I but see. can structurally be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they So they chose that guy, and... The mayor still said, yeah, I don't want that guy. I'm going to choose this guy that didn't even apply. And that's who's the commissioner now. So who is this guy that didn't apply? He was a couple ranks down, um, already in the agency. He, is, uh, he said that he has never seen misconduct or corruption in the Chicago Police Department in his entire 20-some-year career. Oh. He uh, is intimately tied into a cheating scandal uh, and the promotional test. Another thing which you could solve easily. So um, his friend's like wife or something got number one on the lieutenant's test, which is extremely uh, qualifying, so to say. And as soon as the information comes down that he actually was the one that was developing the test, had the answers, and then she gets this super high score out of nowhere. And, you know, it's when everybody says, oh, come on, we've seen this before. We know what it is. Right. So you could solve it. You could retest them. Right. And yeah. see who does it. And but of didn't. course, of course not. So they're not going to do that. Not, they don't have any interest in exposing things. So if I'm going to come in there and I'm going to say, all right, that's it. We're going to be transparent. I don't think they're okay. So now, when you say that you were a little too far ahead, what do you mean by that? Well, it seems the people of a city or of any area have to be pushed hard enough to to have that change. Like they have to have that breaking point where they say, "That's it. We're going to do something different." Because what I really push is for civilian controlled policing. I want you guys to tell me what what should be done which is a huge drop in power. So that's, that would require a mayor that's willing to give in to the people that have pushed hard enough to say, look, I'm going to relinquish control of my essential armed wing, and I'm going to give it to the people. And so... Has which, that ever been done before? Not that I'm aware of. Not in America, it certainly hasn't. So who's going to be the city that takes that leap? It has to come. It has to. We all know it. So it's a matter of film. Well, what they've tried to do in some areas, like uh, in New Jersey in particular, is m- force these people to integrate more into the community, make them walk the beat, which is ne- you, like you don't hear about that anymore. Now everyone's in a car and you're driving around this closed up vehicle, whereas before everybody was walking around and you were sort of like, oh, there's Officer Mike. You know, he's a part of the community, and it, it, it became normal to see these people. They developed friendships with the people that were in their neighborhood, that they were patrolling, and it sort of ingratiated them more. Um, I think having a bunch of people that you don't know patrolling your streets with guns in a car 
just driving around and you know hardly ever getting out unless they're arresting somebody. That's that's a little odd, right? Well, yeah, but I I don't see that that the, the foot patrol is the solution to that because what they do is they put a facade on it. So Mm -hmm. they make it look like foot patrol, but it still has those essential underpinnings of, of being motivated to go and make arrests and, and to get the stats. So I did foot patrol for like six months and that's what it was. It was just being thrown in to get drug arrests. I didn't know anybody or meet anybody. It was still those same pushing to get somebody, put them in a a prison cell, do the paperwork, go back out and do it again. So what we really need is to change the incentives and disincentives so that no matter what the role, we're still going towards that objective that actually serves you. Right. Um, I had Dave Smith in the other day. Excuse me. Um, Dave Smith, who's a hilarious stand-up comedian, and he's also uh, on uh, this podcast called Legion of Skanks. He's a libertarian, very smart guy. But he he was bringing up a point about... New York, after the shootings in New York where a bunch of cops had gotten shot, um, um, there was this sort of uh, cool-off period where they had just stopped arresting people for bullshit. And the bullshit arrests, like loose cigarettes, things along those lines, just dropped substantially. And people were really excited about that. They were like, look, this is like a good step. Like, this is really how it should be. The police shouldn't be glorified revenue collectors just arresting people for the the taxes lost on loose cigarettes, and that's what killed Eric Gardner, right? Precisely. I mean, yeah, I mean it's disgusting. It's it's not it's not policing. That guy's not hurting anybody. Policing should be protecting and serving, right? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really be? glad that you brought up that instance in New York. So what that is is direct evidence against what the head of the FBI has said, Comey, who's coming and he's pushing this Ferguson effect. Right. So the idea around they're saying, oh, we have crime going up in these different neighborhoods because there's this Ferguson effect that the the cops are laying back. So they're not being as proactive. And because they're not being as proactive, then they're not locking people up. So so stats are going up. And we know that if you have a theory and there's one situation that says your theory is complete crap, well, your theory is complete crap. And that's what New York was. So New York, they they stepped back and they, they wanted to be like, oh, look how much you need us. And didn't the work. stats didn't show that. The yeah. stats showed lower crime. They had less calls for service. Everybody was happier with what was going on because that is it, it's we want to say that policing should prevent things. And it's just not possible. Police are there to clean things up and to investigate after the fact. Every arrest should be viewed as a failure of the system. We shouldn't praise an arrest. That is when we failed. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I think another way to look at it that's maybe more, on more common ground is you're, you're fucking with people. When you're, when you're around them all the time and you're like, what's going on over there, boys? You know, like that kind of shit. You're fucking with them. You're creating tension. And tension creates arguments. It creates crime. It creates resentment. It creates anger. All those things contribute to crime, 100%. And when you fuck with people over loose cigarettes or any sort of nonsense, petty crime that nobody gives a shit about... That kind of stuff is it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the relationship that police have with citizens. It's not good for the perception of the citizens, of, of the, the way they view the police. It makes them view the police as these, these thugs. Which citizens, though? A significant amount of the citizens in this country very much like 
that the facts that, that police do that. Well, the, they don't live there. Right. But if they were poor and they lived in those communities, they wouldn't feel like right. that. Right. So, so that's you, you always do this. You hit on these big issues because you're just like, well, wait, this is obvious. It's right in front of our face. Yeah. And what they're doing is, is they, they are funded. And, you know, so you have a mayor in Baltimore. The mayor directs the police department's uh, way, no matter what city you're in. And what that person is doing is they're serving those those rich people. They're serving uh, the mass voters of the area who just have that mentality still that they want those animals caged and to mm. pen them in and to keep them there. So as long as it doesn't affect us, then who cares? Right. And, and that's really what you're hitting on there is, is that they ch- – I don't know that more of this country – doesn't want our police to be that way. I think they they're happy about it. I think you're probably right, but I think they're misinformed. And I think they have this this incorrect understanding of uh how that affects the people that these cops are interacting with and that, that it actually does probably create more crime. And then on top of that, you I think there's also the problem with that those people that are in those poor communities could just as easily be you or I. If we were born into those situations, and we're talking about like giving people an opportunity to get out, giving people a possibility to get out uh, and, and do better and, and improve their situation, their standing in life. Well, if they're getting fucked with all the time, that's not going to happen. If they're in a, a terrible, poverty-laden, crime-laden community, good luck with that. Good luck getting out of that. It becomes almost insurmountable. And I think it's real convenient for people to be outside of that and, and look at those folks and go, well, those people need to stop doing crime. What you need to do is just lock them all up. Well, it, that's, that doesn't seem to make sense. It seems much more likely that the best way to handle that is to lock them up less and to uh, sort of somehow or another try to calm that area down. And I don't know how you would do it. I mean, whether it's through some universal basic income idea, which I've been paying a lot of attention to that lately and trying to uh, explore those ideas and see if I can wrap gonna, my own. They're going to call me a socialist and you're talking about minimum. <laughs> it wasn't my idea. It was, you know, it was an idea that Eddie Huang uh, brought up on the podcast and I initially laughed at him. I was like, what? Psh, nobody's going to fucking go for that. And then I started reading some articles on it and I started thinking about it. And the, the, financially, the issue is where's that money come from? And you're obviously going to, it's a, a shit ton of money that's going to have to somehow or another come out of something else. And I'm not a, I'm not a financial person. I don't understand economy. I'm not an economist. So I'm not the person to do the the numbers. But when I think about it, like objectively, as far as from a social stance, uh, when people have less problems, when bills are paid easier, when they're more relaxed as far as like where food's coming from, where, you know, basic needs are covered, they're less likely to commit crime. So it, it just makes sense that you would have to spend less money on law enforcement, less money on prisons, less money on jails, and that perhaps that could translate. There was a great article written by, um, see if you could find it, Jamie, this is a, some prominent libertarian who wrote this piece about universal basic income. It's the, the idea is essentially giving people $13,000 a year. And that if you give Americans, thir- you know, this is essentially 1000 bucks plus a month. And that if you did that, you would take care of a shitload of problems that we have in inner cities and crime and all this. And he uh, sort of outlined it and made a, uh, a, pr- a pretty interesting case for this idea. 
Um, but of course, you've got a lot of people that want to go on and on about welfare babies and, and, and people that are juking the system and buying cigarettes with food stamps and you know things along those lines. But it's like this callous sort of approach to dealing with really poor people in really bad neighborhoods. And one of the things that you brought up about Baltimore that made it so disturbing was that black people had to buy houses in these areas. They would not sell houses in certain areas to black people. And that this was like a law. And this was actually written. This was not, not like everybody conspired. This was something that they actively set out to do. They, the, this idea of caging them, keeping them in, they, they, they literally did that through paperwork. Right. And that's uh, so things that you're talking about and like that sociologist that, that has that study, we, we know these things. So what you're observing is, is things that the scholarly community has known for a long time and is trying to, to get these things out there so that people understand this. It's not even a matter of how much is this going to cost because we're already spending the money right. and we're spending a lot more. This book, this is why I brought it with me because I just finished going what through it. it. It was just put out. So this is by a Johns Hopkins researcher, uh, Stephanie DeLuca, who's a friend of mine, you know, so everybody knows that I, I am saying it, but she, they did a study. They followed Baltimore youth around for well over a decade. I think it was like 15, 16 years and their paths that they go through. And part of that was it cost $27 billion to America every single year for disconnected youth. So that's just youth that don't have a drive and don't have a focus. Of and where how is that uh, money? How does it trickle down? Right. Like so what they do billion. is so they don't chase things. Right. So you mm -hmm. get stuck in this, this this idea that you can't escape this neighborhood because we have so many blockades in the way there are. It's stories that go through. They, they track like 100 and some people, parents having kids in these neighborhoods and moving them out and what happened to them. And the two biggest pushers for the success of, these, of uh, any kid in these cities was that they had um, an identity project, which means uh, they're finding their passion and what they're going to go towards because mm -hmm. they don't know these passions. They don't know that a photographer like Devin Allen, a friend of mine in Baltimore, can, can come out and do things for their community and can actually achieve that dream. So once they see it and it's possible and you start taking the hurdles down, like the hurdles of where they live and the hurdles of the arrest for the bag of weed or for, like you said, the the talking yourself into jail because the cops messing with you every single day and you're, you're saturated with police in these neighborhoods. You start taking down these barriers and these kids excel. And that it goes completely against the narrative that we're hearing that these kids don't have motivation and they can't push out. 80% of these kids that grow up in the city never touch the streets or have anything to do with it. They're getting high school degrees at four or 500% the rate of their, their parents. It's just that what we keep doing is we keep getting them behind and they're still fighting super hard, but we're still throwing more and more hurdles in their way. So the money that the, the, you're talking about, how much it costs for these disconnected youths, this is all in uh, prisons and This isn't even prison. What is it? This is just the lack of their pro productivity from oh. achieving what they can achieve. And what it's costing us to, you know, then take care of, of what the, in, the fallout is in that, that, that just that microcosm. We're not throwing in, locking up everybody else. We're not throwing in the parents. We're not throwing in all this other stuff. Just youth that don't have a passion. Well, 
this is one of the subjects that's come up over and over again on this podcast because I've always tried to figure out what it is that keeps people from trying to socially engineer these um, these environments and make them better for the people that live there. Like we're always concentrating on all these other countries. We're concentrating on you know helping Afghanistan and you know rebuilding Iraq and uh, all the stuff that we do humanitarian efforts all over the world. Right? What about our own inner cities? I think it's they do. I think they're misguided. So what we end up doing is we we have this idea that we're rich and often white and we're going to come in and we're going to like have the handout or we're going to give them what we want or we're going to show them the right way. And that's not the answer. The answer is to ask what they want and provide the structure and platform for that to take place. So when these uh, smart people that haven't been in there, they'll look at stats and they'll look at the paperwork and they'll say, oh, we just need to move people out and relocate them. Or we need to, the, the idea was, all right, well, we'll put them in this big tower and we'll have resources around them and everything will be fine. And we're making sure they have their own police department. So everything will be, will be good. But then the police start locking everybody up and you just, you, you get into that cycle again, because you're not giving the identity project even to adult, adults where you can say, whether it's comedy or whether it's photography or no matter what, you have to have that goal, that vision, because the, all they see is that their future is in dealing or in a prison cell. And they keep being told that if they do the right thing, they can move on. But when they do the right things, our um, sometimes good intentions have uh, put up the roadblocks that prevent them from doing that. So, but how do you sort of engineer, for lack of a better term, a whole society? Like, how do you give them goals? How do you, how do you expose them to all these possibilities? And how do you set up paths? You just said the word. Expose. Mm-hmm. They're, they're isolated. They don't know. Right. But how do you do that? Though? I think social media is helping a ton. Mm-hmm. So they can see and, and interact with people that are different from them. And they can see, oh, look, this kid from New York, he did get into this school and he has this job now. And now I can maybe go work for his company or whatever it is. They see these examples of success and then they start to pick them up and chase them. And that's what these the stats and all this book are sh- is showing that it's it's staggering how much effort these kids are putting in to their goals. It's just that we're actually setting up the prevention of it by doing things like, uh, okay, we charge uh, a, a black kid in the city. You know you charge him. He commits a, a homicide because he was defending his sister from getting raped. But when he gets a prison sentence, we know that that prison sentence just slams him. But when it's a white kid from Sanford, you know what happens. So it's, it's kind of this, I don't want to push empathy all the time, but there is that, that empathy angle. But it's just kind of helping people get where they want to get instead of pushing them where you think they should be. They'll find their own path. It's like we're, we treat poor people like they're children, and they're not. They're poor people. Um, there's, a, there's a dude who works at the comedy store who was a um, criminal defense attorney. And uh, he resigned. He stopped doing it because he got tired of his when he was bringing cases to trial. If it was a white guy, the white guy would get, you know, whatever, six months for an identical crime. A young black guy would get 10 years. And he was like, 
you got to someone's got to tell me what the fuck is going on here because all I'm looking at is systematic racism. I'm looking at institutional racism. He's like, this is just over and over and over again. I'm confronted by the same kind of people, the same age brackets, but completely different types of sentences. And uh, what's the mentality behind it? And he said everybody wanted to just bury their head in the sand, and he couldn't do it anymore. It was so str- I mean, when the guy talks about it, he's like smoking cigarettes and freaking out because it was just a few, a 10 years of his life and it was just too much. He couldn't do it anymore. Um, that kind of shit is almost insurmountable when you, you, and you're, you're living in that world and you're one of those people that gets sent down the river for 10 years for something that, you know, if you were a white Irish kid, you would get six months or, you know, a, a much lesser sentence that alone it's got to be a gigantic hurdle for someone living in these environments. And this is not saying that people shouldn't be punished for crimes. They definitely should be punished for crimes. But you sure, sure about that? They also should be, well... Punished? Absolutely. I mean, should murder? that be our view? Should that be our view, What do you though? think they should do about murder? Should punish them or just <sighs> give them a hug? It would certainly depend uh, on, on the situation. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I can't help but keep coming back to the fundamental idea that our criminal justice system is based on punishment. Like, that's, that's not a moral system. It's like the death penalty. Right. We know that these things don't work. So now, now, do they get rights taken away? So what I would like to see is let's take, for instance, we know that it costs so-and-so thousands of dollars a year to house somebody. I think it's 24000 Depends on where you are, though. So a college degree from an online school, that's accredited, which we can all do easily right now, would cost way less than that. So put them in a, in a, in a cell. And you keep them around, but you treat them like human beings. You give them an identity, a goal where they can achieve something. And they actually, because right now we send them into a prison of punishment. And what happens when they come out? They're in a worse situation. So now we've created a greater criminal than we had before. So our goal is supposed to be some kind of rehabilitation, that this is a better person when they leave than when they go in. But we have that in us. We want these fuckers to pay. Well, certainly for murder. I mean, for the families of someone that they victimized, they don't want this person to come out better. Not even all victims feel that way, though. Mm. You know, and it, it's so there are plenty of murder victims who, who their parents have gone and, and asked for leniency for for the person, or asked to not give them the death penalty because that's the, pretty fucking rare. Though the, you're, it, you're is, it is, it is rare. Yes, yes. Most yeah. people want revenge. Yeah, but we have to to look beyond that because. You know, when when your sister gets in a fight and kills your neighbor who's your friend or something like that, you're not asking for the death penalty, right? Because it's close to you. Well, the it's prob- when it's others. We, we do that to others. We wouldn't do that to, to the ones we know. Well, threats to society. Those, those, that's the real issue with some people. Sure. White, black, whatever. Someone's a soci- sociopath. Someone's a psycho. They're a threat to society. Like uh, the guy who killed all those people in the theater in Denver. Mm-hmm. That's a psycho. Yeah. I mean, that, that guy needs to be locked up forever. Sure. Just, right? Sure. Okay. Nothing you can do about it. Is, well, what do you do about a person like that? I mean, how do you how do you take a person like that and do you give him goals in prison? Do you try to give him an education? I mean, obviously, he's yeah, got a mental illness. Yeah, why would you do that, illness. though? So think about that. He could become, not not him, obviously, like you're saying, he has a mental illness, but somebody else. You could educate them while they're there, and they can contribute to literature. Right. They can contribute to science. They can give back to some society in some way. Is that financially feasible? How much more money would it take to make prison a safer environment for people that are locked up? I mean, we're, we're, the, the idea is that we're supposed to be protecting the rest of us from those these people that have committed these awful crimes, right? Someone's committed rape. Someone's committed murder or armed robbery. 
We separate them from us because we don't want them to victimize any more people. Then goal number two is rehabilitation, and that goal is overwhelmingly a failure. Overwhelmingly. If you look at the statistics, if the we recidivism pretend rate, that it's been attempted. Yeah, that's a good good point. I mean, well, there are. I mean, uh, Rick Ross, the guy we've had on before, the real Rick Ross, not the the rapper guy. <laughs> um, he, I mean, he learned how to read and literally figured out what was wrong with his case mm-hmm. in prison. He not didn't know all how prisons to read. do that, though. A lot right. of them won't give them any access. That some do, you know. Mm. So there are wardens out there that are progressive and, and are thinking of these things. So that shouldn't really be on the warden, huh? There should be some sort of a standard nationwide where we should look at it as a culture, as a society, as a civilization and say, hey, you know, what what should we be trying to do to try to make these people better people? Right. And you do that when you arrest them, though. So what we say now is when he goes and shoots or when someone rapes, we're not looking at it at that, as that failure. So if you, if you were running this business and an asset, a facet of your business failed, then you would want to have an analysis and you would want to say, all right, let's do a regression and figure out what went wrong. And you would want to fix that for the next time. But we don't do that. We just go, all right, throw that one away and continue path as normal. We shouldn't be so focused when we arrest somebody to figure out uh, how we're going to throw them away for the longest. We should be figuring out why it happened so we can prevent it for the next person. But we that's what, it doesn't seem like we actually care about solving the crime. We're just keeping these wheels turning. So if you commit murder, then I want to know why. I want to know the scenarios that led you up to that. Because mm-hmm. the only way that I can actually prevent that is not minority report. It's finding out what that hurdle was, that moment that you said, fuck this, and finding ways to prevent that as much as possible or reduce it for other people. And a lot of it must have to do with the developmental period that you go through when you're a young person and what you're exposed to as a small child. I mean, and that stuff becomes so deeply ingrained in a person's mind to try to reverse that. Boy, it's so much harder than to try to raise someone correctly the first time. All that's in this book. They talk about that as coming of age in the other America. I mean, they talk about these things where that's one of the the predictors is how much exposure to violence Mm -hmm. that these kids have had when they were going between the ages of zero and 10. Mm. And so when they got them out of the city and they gave them opportunities, then they got exposed to less violence. The really crazy thing in this study is that we found out that the kids that were in the city that didn't get help, they also fought their way out at actually a higher rate. So we did these nice things and we have to tweak it. But like our nice things that we did actually didn't pan out in the same results as kids that were just fighting on their own. Uh, so explain that. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. So they had these housing voucher programs where they would, the idea was to take people out of those neighborhoods and put them into nicer neighborhoods where they would be exposed to less things, and they would have neighbors around that did, did things, and the, that was very beneficial when, when that happened. But about an equal percentage of those kids went back, ended up being in the low-income areas and get involved into the streets, and then the ones that fought themselves out on their own ended up uh, at a higher, slightly higher percentage actually getting out and being exposed to less because of their own individual efforts in the control group trying to get out of there. So while it says that the programs need some tweaking, it, but it shows that, that it's counter-narrative 
that these kids aren't trying and that they're not succeeding to get out. Like they are pushing super hard to make something of themselves. And it, and our cultural idea is like, oh, look, these kids are not doing anything. They're just turning into drugs and they're just dealing. And surprisingly, they're not. It is twelve percent of the kids raised in Baltimore in this study ever spent. And these are in the worst neighborhoods. It's East and West Baltimore ever spent a moment on the streets doing any criminal activity. 12%. Staggering. I, I mean, I'm shocked. I feel dumb because I did the same things. Like, yo, that's all they're exposed to, right? But it's, mm-hmm. it's not. They're fighting out like crazy, and we're the ones stopping them from coming to fruition. Well, not us. Society. We're responsible, right? Like, yeah. so but, we, uh, but we are need to we, speak more. I mean, here's the thing. It's like, how much effort is actually being done to try to fix this? I mean, how many people are actually thinking about it? How much money is actually being spent to try to fix this? It seems like there's so many problems in the world that to concentrate on bad neighborhoods or crime-ridden neighborhoods, it's so low on the list of things the world's worried about. The polar ice caps are melting, polar bears are drowning. You know, there's, there's so much shit we're worried about on top of that. They're trying hard as hell to keep it the way it is, though. In Who's ba- trying hard? Governments are. In Baltimore, for example, there's this, this patented thing that uh, uh, a professor from Morgan State, Lawrence Brown, uh, is really into this and, and tracks it all down. But there's a white L. We call it the white L in Baltimore. It goes down through the rich neighborhood and comes across to the other rich neighborhoods by the bay. And then there's the black butterfly, which comes off to the sides, east and west Baltimore. And it looks like butterfly wings dispersing out poverty and black uh, people in the city. And what this is in every single aspect that you're going to find where the where the money goes for schools, where the bus routes are, where the free buses like the white neighborhoods have a free bus and the black neighborhoods have to pay for their bus. Really? Yes. So we have all these things that no matter what you think of this white L and this black butterfly come to fruition um, on where resources are allocated and what problems are. How is that possible that white people don't have to pay for the bus and the black people do? That seems ridiculous. Well, you want me to tell you that they, they it's the Why neighborhood. Is because is there it's, a reason for it's that? the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're not serving the white people. They're serving those upper class neighborhoods. But is it a, in, is it a tax issue? Is it a, a, a property tax issue where they mm-hmm. spent money for the buses? No, no? it's all Baltimore City. So it's all the money. Stays. So how the fuck could they justify that? They, they, they just do it. Like, and, and nobody cares. I mean, it, it's, it's, so people should follow him. It's at Doc on Twitter. He, he lays this out in so many different avenues. You, you just, you at, have to be willfully ignorant to not realize that this is going on. At DOC. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's uh, that's insane. Now, how much of it is um, dealing with uh, prison guard unions and and police unions that are trying to keep business as usual because that keeps people employed? Well, that's a significant portion, and you're seeing that with the NRA, and you're seeing that with the the police unions, and like you said, the correctional unions, where and, and like see even them, they don't have these bad intentions. What they have is job preservation. Everything comes back to those incentives and disincentives. So they're fighting for their job, and that's all they're thinking. Well, we want jobs. We want safer conditions. I want to make sure that this is a big company that blows up, so they're going to put their money towards politicians that support them. And that's just the way it goes. That's the way it's always been. As long as we have money in politics, you can't get away from that. Well, the most transparent example of that is marijuana. That we've shown time and time again with a million different studies that marijuana is not dangerous or if it is dangerous, the danger that it, it poses is so minimal. It's so small that 
consenting adults should be able to do whatever the fuck they want with it. And yet prison guard unions and police unions still lobby to keep the drug laws exactly the same way they are because that ensures that you're going to need a certain amount of guards, you're going to need a certain amount of police officers. That's counterintuitive. I mean, that's, that's dangerous for a society because that sets up this us versus them mentality where it doesn't need to be where you're telling people there's a certain forbidden plant that they're not allowed to use. We've decided this. We're going to keep it this way, even though it's completely illogical, even though we know the history of it. And we're going to do it simply because people want to keep their jobs. Instead of trying to figure out what other jobs these people can do. Like, shouldn't there be a way you could take some of these people that are prison guards or police officers and give them a job with a commensurate income that's involved in helping communities, something positive, something uh, setting up community programs. I mean, how many guys that are cops are also into martial arts or into fitness or into something else or, you know, anything where they could teach people in these communities, set up community centers and give people high paying jobs to establish really good environments for development and for growing and give people a chance to be exposed to maybe one of these things that could be these paths that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, the, I have obviously I'm going to have zero objection to that. I mean, that that's a great way of going about it. And cannabis is obviously the shining example of complete illogic. They just did a new study where they tracked people for 30 years. You know what health problems they found? What gingivitis. Bad breath? Yeah, they just didn't brush their teeth. Goddamn hippies. As much. Yeah, hippies didn't brush their teeth. Stinky so, breath hippies. So that's what, the, that's what the study people said. They said the same thing. Like, well, that probably just because the we're lazy. in a certain segment of the population. Yeah. And it doesn't have anything to do with the cannabis. That's hilarious. So we know without a, a doubt that, that that's the case. But what we, we can do is, so say you still want to do that. And we don't have to change them that far to, to get them away from the drug war, even though that's that's probably the biggest chunk that's fucking everything up is the drug war. But if we spend that money, instead of incarcerating them, we can spend the money in education. So for every million dollars that's spent fighting the drug war on the supply side, there's a 100 kilogram reduction of, of supply. So uh, if, if you have you know, the kilograms of cocaine coming over the border, if you fight it with force, you, know, you, you fight the supply side, then you get a 10 gram, a kilogram reduction. But if you spend that same million dollars on the demand side, educating people, you have a reduction of 100 kilograms. Whoa. So we, that's a where's, where's this from? I, I don't know. Somebody can look it up. It's, it's real easy. That's uh, you'll find it right away. Uh, that's very logical, though, and I, I, it makes sense right. to me. So, so we know that if you just educate people, and tobacco is the shining example of that, is tobacco rates have gone down like crazy. Now, let's take the Eric Gardner situation out of that. Mm -hmm. The large part of that has been because of education. So... You educate people out of drugs. Educated people, you know, like they say all the time, if, if heroin's on Amazon right now, do you order it? No, I don't order it. I don't know about Jamie. I'm Jamie's a heroin freak. He loves it. He gets a bunch of different styles. He mixes them up. Right. So, so it's prohibition <laughs> that messes us up. Yes. And we know that. And when you yes. have prohibition, you're not determining uh, what happens to the drugs. All you're doing is determining who is distributing the drugs because they will be distributed. The question is, is it the government, and i.e. the people doing the distribution, or is it the black market, the gangs, and the mafia? Well, as long as it's under prohibition, it's the black market, the gangs, and the mafia. We, we literally know this. There's nothing to discuss. Yeah. And yet we continue 
with this anti-intellectualism and denial it, it, that that's kind of it, it's it runs throughout our society in America. Uh, speaking, you know, about the guns, you know, we're dealing with the same thing where it's just constant. We have evidence, we can prove things empirically, and we still just continue to do the opposite for for reasons I just can't get my mind wrapped around. Like it's we're I feel like I'm fighting denial, and it's been like a year that I'm fighting this denial and talking on radio shows constantly. But yet, I, you know, a couple months ago, we pull up the Internet and the FBI director is pushing the Ferguson effect. And it's just like, fuck. Like, yeah. how do we get past this? Well, I think that we're dealing with two, two completely different subjects, right? The, the gun um, control subject is a very different subject than trying to figure out how to elevate people in bad neighborhoods. Um, the gun control subject is, you know, if you look at the statistics of how many Americans have guns, how many rounds of ammunition there are, how many armed people there are in this country, and then you look at how many crimes there are, how many gun shootings there are, it's relatively small, very small. We're dealing with massive numbers of people. Compa- yeah, I mean, if you... There's 300 God, million... Just thought, just finish okay, there's 300 million plus people in this country. So if you look at this this blip on the map where every few months someone goes fucking crazy and kills a bunch of people. Um, if we really had uh, an armed problem in this country, the logic that the anti-gun control people use would be that you would see way more shootings and you would see them all the time. If we really had a gun control problem, you have so many armed people, if, if it was a real issue. But the issue, what they try to say, and I'm not picking the team here, but what they try to say is that what we're dealing with is just massive numbers of people, massive numbers of people. The, the number 300 million is so hard for the average person like you or I to wrap our head around what that means in terms of the, the volume, the sheer volume of people and how many guns there are out there. There's as many guns as more guns than there are people in this country, which is even more insane. And the... The people that own these guns, for the most part, are law-abiding citizens that don't do anything wrong. Why take away their rights? Because some dude like this asshole in Orlando goes fucking crazy and kills 50 gay people. Okay, you set up a couple of premises there. And one of them was that they have a right to that weapon. Right. Which I'm going to argue to the end of the day that they don't. Okay. Um, The Second Amendment is clear. Well-regulated militia. It's literally clear. It says it in black and white. Well-regulated militia. And even if we go the past keep that... keep bare arms, sure. right? Even if we go past that, forget that, I'm not a big fan of the Constitution and leaning on it because the, the world has changed dramatically. We're, we're in a whole new situation. Rethink with the evidence that we have now. Let's not rely on the document that's that's on parchment somewhere decaying, yeah. right? So Written with a feather. Right. That's why that they made it yeah. amendable. So the first thing is that they have the right. I don't think they have the right. And the second is... That that number is acceptable. I so what you're trading in there is what are you getting? So if you have an equation where they can have these guns, so what are you benefiting and what are you losing? Tell me what as a society we benefit from handguns and uh, rifles. Well, the people that have been able to protect themselves against dangerous crime, the people that have been able to stop people from breaking into their homes, stealing their property, harming them physically, or protecting their loved ones. So when you talk about ratios, there's 30,000 handgun crimes in America every year, right? That's it? 
the documented of, not, of really shootings. Yet? Shootings, 30,000. So, wow, I thought it was way more than that. So if we take the percentage of people that defended themselves, I mean, you got five to 10 cases a year. Like that doesn't actually occur. But what are they defending themselves against? Those people with handguns and rifles. So you're, in, you're trapped in this circular logic where you need a gun because I have a gun. And then eventually Jamie says, well, those fuckers have a gun. I want a gun too. And we know where that goes. We literally know. It keeps getting more and more and more. Now, if we have this perpetual society where everyone has everything and uh, everything's perfect, but that's just not going to happen. We're going to have strife. And a lot of these guns are concentrated in a few people's hands that have 200 guns. You know dudes that have 50 guns. I know dudes that have 50 guns. I know a dude who has so many guns. Justin, I'm talking about you, <laughs> motherfucker. My buddy Justin has so many guns, he doesn't even know how many guns he has. Right, so they have those in Plus, some... he's a giant. <laughs> He's seven feet tall, and he has 150,000 fucking guns. So they have, they have them in a safe, or they have them out in rural America. Yes. But they're not even, like, interacting with people, like, to have the strife. Well, he's so, a, a, a firearms enthusiast, and he is also a guy with a squeaky clean criminal record. What's the argument against him being able to be a firearms enthusiast and possess all these guns? Because of what it's done to our society. You, he hmm. just wants to have something, and I, I, I don't want to talk about him particularly unless right. he's here. I know, but I'm so, just saying it because he's my friend. Right. So anybody, anybody, what are you gaining? So there's an equation. In one, one side of this equation, we have 30,000 handgun victims. We have a, a society that's gripped by fear. Mm-hmm. We have dudes that can go get an AR-15 and days later light up a nightclub and do a hate crime. We know that that's going to happen, and we know that as the future progresses, that that this 103 casualties of this shooting is going to be superseded by a bigger shooting that that's going to happen because you know we got to break the records, right? And so right. and we're going to have more and more guns that keep coming in and keep coming. So that's on the right hand side of the equation, and on your left hand side of the equation for for having guns, the argument is, well, I like them. Well, there's also the argument that a well-armed society is a polite society. And that if there were people that had guns in that nightclub, they would have been able to prevent that crime by taking that guy out. There were eight cops. I mean, that was the same thing in Denver. Like, if there were cops there, but the cops were getting shot. But didn't the cops get to a point where, wasn't there a hostage situation? I mean, I don't know the details about Florida, so it's it's, it's really problematic. But if this were true, cops wouldn't get killed. Right? They have the biggest army that's on our streets. So if more guns, we keep having more cops with more and bigger guns, then it would stop, right? Because the cops, the cops roll in armored vehicles with AR-15s to combat juveniles on Madame and Mall during the uprisings. But don't more cops shoot more criminals than criminals shoot cops? Don't more cops kill more people that are trying to commit crimes than those people can of course, shoot cops. But that, so, that's predicated upon the premise that they're trying to shoot the cops, and they're absolutely not. Right. They're trying to get away. Some of them. Sure. The ones yeah. that are actively trying right. to shoot cops are super small. Because you got to remember. But you're saying that cops are getting shot. They do get shot, right? Right. Right. But what I'm saying is, yes, but isn't that sort of an argument right. that but no, 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 no. being when armed there, will when protect there is, you better? When there is one guy mm-hmm. with a rifle... That he purchased legally. And a bunch of cops. And a bunch of cops. The cops but, still get shot. Right, but a lot of those it's guys. one. But a lot of those guys that you're talking about, there's one guy. Like, remember the North Hollywood shootout? 
Mm-hmm. Well, These I guys mean, that's famous, of course. Armed to the fucking gills sure. and wearing body armor and all that shit. They sure. were, the cops were just so outgunned as far as firepower. Sure. So our answer is that they get more firepower, right? No, you, this, I'm not but, saying that's the answer. But this is the circle but logic that, that we keep having. This is one of the reasons why these cops are getting shot. They're getting shot and killed in that situation in particular because they're walking around with 38 revolvers no, or 9-millimeter Glocks. They're getting shot because that guy has armor and a fucking AR-15. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's like, not that they, they aren't ha- inadequately armed. Well, they, they would are. be. They, their handgun would be perfectly fucking fine if we didn't have AR-15 saturating our streets. Well, that guy, I don't even think he had an AR-15. He had something like that's he had all, some really that's all heavy you shit. That's all you okay. need. Yeah. So, like, that's what I'm Which, saying. Which, by is, the way, it's the same gun as an M16, folks. It's a, it's, a, it's a military weapon. It's the same gun that was created, I think it was created in the 50s. To deal with the AK-47. There was an HBO uh, par- a series on Real Sports recently that talked about it. They were, they were talking about AR-15. But enthusiasts. any 223 can do that damage. That's a semi-auto. Mm-hmm. And we get caught up in the assault weapons. Right. Right. And the assault weapons are going to keep you having better aim. They're going to keep you having a higher magazine capacity. going to be a little more reliable weapon. But a, a, a hunting rifle with a 10 magazine clip, that's a 223, and it's a semi-automatic, is going to do the exact same level right. uh, of damage that we're talking about. So my position on gun control is, is extremely simple. You want your guns for these other things, like, say, hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Bolt-action rifles and shotguns. There you go. Everything that you can, that's on your, on the pro-gun side that they want to achieve can all be accomplished by shotguns and bolt-action rifles. Well, yeah, I, I see that argument, but I also see the argument that hunters would use in that situation that if you limit the amount of rounds that a guy can have in his gun or the ability to fire off rounds quickly, you're limiting their ability to make a quick follow-up shot on an animal that would kill that animal. Yeah, and so if you have somebody that's that dedicated, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that, personally. So if you have somebody that if we want to establish this high standard, so say, say we have the super high standard where this guy, he can get his big gun that he uses and is well-trained on, and he's gone through a super long process of backgrounds, and he's all checked out. That, I, I don't have the objection to that. But like, say his gun gets stolen. You don't get it anymore. You're done. Right? So you have to maintain this high standard in order to have such extreme privilege. And I'm fine with that. Like people that have C4 and explosives. You know, there are people that can legally carry debt cord and C4 to blow up buildings. They're not a big problem to the rest of society using their debt cord and C4 to, to hurt people. So if that, that's a, a unique class of individual. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So you think there should be more stringent testing and background checks on people that are getting guns? Yeah, especially uh, those kind of high-powered ones or handguns. We, we, we get caught up a lot in the high power because they're, they're capable of that mass destruction. But it's the handguns that cause the fear in society every single day. Because they're so easy to conceal. Yeah, that's the whole problem is the concealment, that you can just pop it out and use it. You don't know who has what. And so everyone becomes a threat because you have this small death device on you that anybody can do anything. And it's just like we got to go back to that equation. Like what is on the other side of the equation of 30,000 handguns and 300 plus uh, mass shootings per year? The other side of that equation is is that ridiculous idea. I mean, if you can figure out something for me other than I like collecting guns and I think they're cool and it's my right, then then I'm willing to hear it. I just don't hear an argument beyond that. 
Well, the only argument is that a person who is not a criminal and a person who doesn't have any ill will in their hearts and just enjoys firearms should be able to have them just like you should be able to have a truck that you could just drive through a fucking crowd of people with if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, but so th the argument there that you can have the truck and the truck is capable of, of harm, mm -hmm. well, so just like a knife. But a knife has a quadrillion other uses. Mm -hmm. So on that other side of that equation, when the sh you could say, well, what do we need a knife for? Well, it's to chop up food. It's to uh, skin a deer. It's to do a thousand other things. The, the AR or something like that is for one purpose and one purpose only. And that's to kill a human being. Well, that was what it was designed for, but people use them for hunting. They're you fools. Know that, right? They have a better rifle to use than that for hunting. Well, the, the thing about hunting with those is that you can pull the trigger many times, do, 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 like for hog hunting and things like that. They're, they're, a lot of people actually prefer them. Sure. So let's say you even want to do that. Again, we're talking about that higher mm -hmm. class person. And so Higher class hog hunter. Yeah, higher class. <laughs> I, I, that's pretty sure that's not an actual thing. Um, like, so you want to go shoot it, and you want to mm -hmm. shoot those those animals. Right. Go check it out from your parks and rec, and go use it. Check it, it out. Back. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. You said you just wanted to use it, right? What do, what do you mean by that? Check it out. Right. So say you could store it at an armory. Like an armory that who runs? The, the government's going to run, of course. Oh, good Lord. Or it could be the private, the private rifle range. Okay. Well, that's how it is in a lot of places in Europe. When right. You, when so you say, hunt. we know how to do this yeah. shit. We literally, other countries have done this. Australia is the shining example. They had one mass shooting, said, fuck this, and they have none since. Right. But you can get a rifle in Australia, mm -hmm. okay? And this is something that gets bandied about many times, so I actually had to do some research. It's not impossible to get rifles for hunting in Australia. You could, it's super you, hard. It's difficult, right. yeah. But Australia also has less people than California, in an enormous chunk of land. Yeah, but we, we have other countries. Take China. Mm -hmm. China's four times our population. Doesn't doesn't even hit the radar screen on the amount of a people they have imprisoned or the amount of violence they have. That's true. But China is, well, was until really recently, it's a communist dictatorship that was run with an iron fist. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, think about Tiananmen Square and what happens when people rebel against the government there. It's... A, it's a completely different sort of culture. Is it? Is oh, it different yeah. than what happens here? They're oh, like, yeah. really, though? I mean, if you stand up against the government, what's going to happen to you here? Well, it's not just standing up against the government. I mean, they, they, the people, they don't have much power over there. Neither to, do we. It's freedom. an oligarchy. We live in an oligarchy. Like, we, we've proven that. That's another thing we've proven. So Princeton did a study where they tracked 19,000 cases of laws that were going on uh, and going through Congress. So uh, what they found out is that public opinion... On whether a law gets passed or not, for instance, gun control, which over 80% of NRA members agree with increased gun control and background checks and things like that. We don't get it passed, Congress, at all. It doesn't have any bearing on public opinion, doesn't have any bearing on whether a law gets passed. But if you have donors that care about a law getting passed, then it's going to get passed. And even when public sentiment is completely against the law being passed, if the, public do if the donors want the law passed, they still have a 30% chance of getting the law passed. I think what the NRA is trying to do is they're trying to prevent the slippery slope. They're trying to establish laws and keep them in place so that establish rights that are already in place, right? Keep them in place. Because they worry that if you start increasing background checks, if you start ramping up 
any sort of restrictions on gun owners that it's a slippery slope that will n- they'll never get back. They'll never get the freedom back. But what I mean, I don't know what that freedom is. We're all afraid to go somewhere. We don't have freedom in this gun saturated country. We're wait, all wait, wait, afraid. Wait, wait, wait. We're not. Well, hold on. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're you not don't a, think people are afraid? But no, I don't. I don't think people are generally afraid. Then why is to the go NRA the fighting to keep the guns? But hold on, you're saying we're all afraid, as if every day when you go to the movies you're worried about a mass shooting. Every day when you go to the wall, and we're not afraid. We travel freely. Occasionally, things like this happen, and they're horrific and they're terrifying. But people aren't generally afraid. We're not all afraid to do things. I just don't think that's true. I don't know. So, why then would we all want to protect this? So much. Well, the NRA's position, the NRA's position is that liberals, Democrats, whatever, they want to take away your right to own a gun. The NRA does not want that. So they spend all their money. They do all their lobbying. They do everything they can to stop any new restrictions from passing and to stop anyone who is trying to take away guns. Right. So so the way you frame that is that they are trying to protect their rights and they want to preserve this thing. But I just don't see it that way. A lot of people, what, those, what people that are fighting against guns, like, so, so me, I, I have guns. I like shooting. I enjoy it. I'm fucking good at it. I made a career out of it, right? But at one point in time, I did enough research and enough understanding that my ultimate goal is that we have a safer society and that we protect people but the way we protect people empirically is to not have these guns. Nobody has the, the gun crime that we have. Nobody in the entire world that's a developed country has the gun crime and incarceration rate and everything that we do. We are the worst example in the, in the developed world of how to do this. Every other example is a better example than what we do. But we're continually trying to stay into, into this same mold that we know is failing. I want to protect people. And the evidence says that in order to protect people, we can't have handguns and assault rifles saturated. I said the damn assault rifle word again. But we, we can't have semi-automatic rifles out there like crazy that enable society to have that risk. I mean, those, those, the, on the other end of that stray bullet is a nine-year-old girl who's bleeding out to death in the city. And I just, I don't want to get like rude with people, but the idea that you want to go fucking shoot something, I just don't give a shit about that when you see the destruction close to you. If suddenly Gabby Gifford can go for, for gun control after it touches you know, or somebody like that. Whenever it touches you, suddenly we start to care. If, t- if right now a mass gunman comes and starts shooting up the rest of this building and they, they kill Jamie, we're all going to care a hell of a lot more. Why Jamie? How come you don't die? Because I didn't want to die. I was hoping you didn't want to die. <laughs> so Jamie doesn't want to die. Throw Jamie under the bus. Jamie's a good guy. <laughs> Please, nobody shoot Jamie. <laughs> And I think I think we would all take a slightly different perspective. I think once it touches I think us. you're right, and I think that's a, an issue with all sorts of crimes, and uh, that's also an issue with poverty and bad communities. Is that it's not touching the people that are that are just want to be safe. Lock those people up. Get them off the street. They're in my way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're right in that regard. I mean, I don't know if there is a perfect answer to getting rid of 300 million guns or controlling I don't think 300 you can do million it. guns. I just want to stop making them. Yeah. Like, let's just stop making them. 
So one of my ideas. But what there, about gun companies? What? Fuck them. They're making fuck a. They're, them. they're making. How dare they're you? They're making a weapon of death. I don't care about what they want. So we know guns can last hundreds of years if you take care of them. Right. right? So if we stop making them, their value will all go up. Mm-hmm. And then we're gonna concentrate it. And I know the uh, libertarians would be like, "Oh my God, all the rich people are gonna hold the guns." I get it. Whatever. They're not gonna use them. We know that. So let's make them more valuable so they're not worth $200 on the street so that uh, you know a gun uh, a disrespect beef or a drug war beef can lead to that shooting. I want to have you sit down with someone who's a gun proponent. Good luck. What do you mean good luck? I've been here for a year doing this day in and day out challenging everyone from Sam Harris to whoever. They're not going to they're not going to do this. The evidence is on my side. Well, they, they're not going to do what? Have they're not going to have a debate because oh, they certainly would. I could definitely set that up. Set it up. Okay. Well, I could set it up my friend Justin. Okay. I, 100% Anybody guarantee. that you can get to do this, please. Okay. Because he needs to give me that pushback that other people need to hear. And if he's right on a position, I will absolutely change. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to set that up then. Um, I'm going to bring in Justin because Justin's very articulate. And uh, don't be intimidated because he is a giant. He does have a thousand fucking guns or something like that. But he's a nice guy. He's a very nice guy. He's a good buddy. Um, and he is a, like I said, a firearms enthusiast, but also a really nice guy that has no criminal record, never done anything wrong, and is very articulate, very smart, very well read. But he's going to say that people like him should have the guns, right? And he's he's right. Well, he is right. Yeah, I mean, he's right. never it's done okay anything with those guns, and he's the wrong fucking right. dude right. to break into his house. Every once in a while, you're going to need a dude like him to kick down a door, right? Yeah. Okay, we know that. So I wouldn't argue if he's going to say he needs, you know, we need this elite. Uh, members of society that like SWAT teams or something like that that can handle these situations. Of course we do. Well, he's a competitive shooter. He does contests and stuff. Right. Like so that. he's going to say, places. "Well, they should shoot like me." Well, I, I'm sure he's right. Like if they can handle it and they're professional as, as him, you're not going to get a pushback from society because nothing's even going to happen. But it's what I'm saying is that he's not doing anything wrong, and it's something he enjoys. Like when do we decide? And I'm just putting this out there. I'm not taking a stance because I don't understand it myself. Uh, and you know, people saying that I'm anti-gun or pro-gun or I'm, I'm pretty neutral on this i also own guns but i i see the problems i definitely see when something like this happens in orlando and some crazy fuck can go in and just shoot up a nightclub and kill all these people we got a real problem i don't know how to solve that real problem i'm sure some people would say concealed pa- carry permits so all these people in the nightclub could shoot out that, that guy. But, but that's then you empirically got a fucking, false. It's empirically well, you got a false. Gunfight in a nightclub. Yeah, more people are going to get shot. Well, not only that, most of the people that get involved in these gunfights will be their first gunfight. So you're going to fucking shit your pants. You're going to get target panic. You're going to miss. You're going to hit people. It's going to be a lot going on. Glad you're saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's not as simple as if I had a gun. If you had a gun, you probably wouldn't even be able to point it at people. And if you pulled the trigger, you'd be lucky if you hit someone right in front of you. So where where was that shooting? Um, it was relatively recent. It was at a college. And there were two Marines on base, on the college campus, with weapons. And they didn't engage because they, they said, hey, look, I was only going to make the situation worse. The cops weren't going to know who I am if I had my weapon out. Right. Uh, I could have missed and done something else. And two guys that were in their 
actual right state of mind that were armed decided that engaging was more dangerous. And it's actually empirically more dangerous that if you engage, you're more likely to die and something's just you're going to shoot somebody else or the situation's not going to be resolved. We, we, we literally know this. People have done this. They've done studies where they've tried to take people and like simulate it and it never pans out. Yeah, but that's engaging with a, an instance where you're not involved. If you are involved, you absolutely have to engage. You're gonna get shot like if you're if, if these no, guys no, are no, in this no. building and people are coming after can, them You have to run Like so all the evidence says that if you run that's your best bet for safety hmm. and like we don't want to do that Right because that's a bitch move, please. I'm down but, for but being a like, bitch <laughs> Someone's shooting. I'm all bitch. Right, I'm we want to be the bitch. hero. There's like this delusion of hero ship mm. You know that somebody's gonna save the day and sure you may find that happen every so often It's wait a minute. Have you not seen Sylvester Stallone movies because it happens all the time? <laughs> Is that problem? That is a problem, right? Isn't That's a it? super problem that they that think we, they can shoot people in the leg while they're running and shit yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, it's also like we've developed this sort of idea of what goes down in a gunfight based on fiction, not based on reality. The amount of people that have actually been exposed to a bullet hitting a live thing is so small. Sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't realize oh, yeah. how loud that is. If oh, you sh shoot with with headphones mm -hmm. in your whole life, yeah. then go ahead and start clacking off 15 rounds with without ear protection on. You're, you'll be ringing. You can't even understand what's going on. You have to be well-trained in that environment and understand, like, cops aren't even in there the first oh, time yeah. they get in a real gun battle because they shoot with earplugs ear in and everything. The first time they're shooting their gun, it, 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 they're hearing the sound and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, you got those people. Like, I, everybody that I was in the Marine Corps with, doing fast team I, I don't think they're going to get any gun crimes and i i think they can handle situations but these are a, a certain segment that needs to live up to a high standard well not only that those are people that have been trained and they've they've developed this understanding of firearms that's so deep most people just don't get to that it's like the average person who watches a, a ufc fight and thinks they can kick someone's ass and then if you fought against a trained martial artist, you're fucked. Like, you really don't know what you're doing. That's kind of the same thing in when you compare someone who really, like my friend Justin, really understands firearms versus the average person who goes and buys a gun and thinks, well, I'm safe now. I got this gun. <sighs> maybe, maybe, maybe. But statistics say that you're more likely to shoot a family member in a, in a fight. or suicide. Yeah, suicide, which, you know. The other a lot, thing, a lot of people. That, that's a wonderful analogy. I love that you you did that because I mean it's a perfect analogy almost for MMA and, and who can handle a weapon as well. But well, it's all about undue confidence, you know. Mm -hmm. And perfect. So like here's here's the thing. I've always wanted to tell people that feel that way. We can. I can tell you. You can have a gun on you right now, and we can set this up in the morning. And I can tell you, walk around your day as normal. At some point in time today, I'm going to take that gun away from you, right? I will get that gun. It, it's going to happen because you, you're not going to be able to protect it. And you know I'm coming. So then why are you actually think you're safe that you have that gun on you? You're just, as long as you're fighting against the inferior opponent or you're in this situation where you have distance and you have all these things, like just like in an MMA fight, it's, it's not going to go as you fucking planned it. I promise. So what, what are you saying, Luke, as far as like you're going to take the gun away from Yeah, them? like say, say you wanted to have a concealed weapon on you, right? right? And say you're standing in line at the bank. You're going about your day as normal. I could tell you at some point in time, I'm going to get that gun from you. And I'll get it. 
Because everything's about surprise. So when the bank robber comes in... Well, it's not surprise if you tell him you're going to get it. Well, sure. I'm just giving you 24 hours. Well, I'll be fucking jacked up on Adderall for 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, but think about the life you're leading, man, to keep that gun safe. You definitely would be. Well, it makes it an adventure. Wait, but that's the thing. You're bigger than me. You can be ready for it. It's still, I'm sorry, you're just not going to be, because it's just going to come out of nowhere. So when people have these guns... Are you, like, really good at disarming people or something? Well, no more than anybody else would be if you learned how to, a holster works. Somebody goes for my gun, I'm punching them in their fucking face. They're going to come from behind you. We're going to be standing in line at a... But, but where's my gun? Right is there it behind your me? On your is it right here? So they're going to come from behind, they're going to grab it. Sure, you can do easily I have do a that. But how hard is it to get a gun out of a holster? There's certain holsters. As long as you know how the holster works, it's cake. Okay, what is that one holster where if you yank on it, it doesn't work? Like, the triple retention holsters, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm really going to see your gun if you have one of those, because those are pretty darn big. What if I'm wearing a puffy coat? Sure, I, I guess you could figure <laughs> out ways to get around it. I'm going to relent then. But... You're just not actually safer. I know a dude who keeps several guns on him all the time and two knives He's got a knife in his boot. He keeps several guns on him all the time. He's been hit in the head a bunch of times So it's just some people Think you just you can't you can't think that that's what's gonna make you safe. It's your mindset It's your it's your awareness of your surroundings. It's your ability to make logical decisions Okay, but you're talking about a very specific case where someone's trying to take your gun away right but that's the but, thing is you're in a you're in a bank right. i don't even need a gun because odds are there's gonna be one there and that's what we we have so like a big thing of policing is you don't get into like jujitsu kind of of wrestling matches because of that gun mm -hmm. right because no matter what fight you're in there's always a gun there and it's the same thing with non-cops Right? You don't want to get in a fight as a cop because if the, the evidence shows statistically that if they get that gun from you, they're going to use it on you. Right. That's going to be no different from you. If they get that gun from you, they're right. going to use it on you. Right. Right. So you, why would you want to be in a fight with somebody? Well, that's a wrestling match, right? So well, you're sure, saying that But I can tackle you and that, fight the gun. You're introducing right. that potential for right. you dying. And there's a high possibility. Yeah, and you didn't have it before. You literally are making yourself more at risk. I mean, the statistics are clear on this. That if you bring a gun to this fight, the odds are against you even higher now. Because most people that bring, uh, if, even if you bring a knife to a fight, a significant portion of those people get the knife taken away from them and it gets used on them. I can't tell you how many cases we've been where you're trying to uh, figure out a stabbing call and come to find out, you know, they tried to do the stabbing. Mm. But they got that shit taken from them and they got stabbed themselves. So once you introduce that, that potential, you're more dangerous right, to yourself. But, but this is, again, you're talking about non-trained individuals and it sort of brings sure. us back to yeah. and I'm not the gonna, responsibility I, I that you I just don't want to fight hard on those really trained people. I, mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. You know, that, that's fine. And that's like, it's not a right at that point. It's a privilege. So it's like driving the car. Driving your car is not a right. It's a privilege. So if these people want to earn that privilege... So be it. But it becomes a problem, doesn't it, when a really fucking crazy person earns that privilege? I mean, if someone hasn't done anything yet criminal, I mean, there's been several people that have committed mass shootings that didn't do anything before they did that shooting. I mean, yeah, so, so you're still left with those. You still decided as a society that on that side of the equation, you're willing to accept that amount, even though right. it's a lesser amount. You've decided to accept that amount. And if we can just move to a point where we can accept a lesser amount, that would be wonderful. But we're, we're continually accepting an ever-increasing amount. Because more people stuff. are buying guns, more yeah. people are buying ammo.
Hmm. So what is the solution then in your eyes? Well, I would like to stop manufacturing. I would uh, like handguns and rifles to be banned. And maybe that has to take a long time. I mean, not rifles, just just uh, semi-automatic. Uh, banned, meaning yeah. you can't own them anymore. N no, let's not go. <sighs> shit. Yeah, see? Uh, so, it's tricky shit. Uh, then it becomes a privilege. So, like, then the handguns. Your Twitter account's getting attacked right now. <laughs> it happens all the time. Anyway. You fucking liberal pussy! So, You're never taking my gun! So, you have to be those people that earn that privilege. The idea that it's a right is just. I think, I think we could call it a lot in that. It's hmm. just. Even if it. Like, we were saying earlier, I think the evidence is there that it's, it's actually not your right. But if it is. Can we rethink that? I mean, well, what is the really Second Amendment? Read it exactly, Jamie, in its form, please, so we can, and again, the idea that we keep the Constitution and the Bill of Rights exactly intact, some shit that was created hundreds of years ago before any of the variables that we have to deal with in society today, whether it's variables about privacy, electronic communications, whether it's the variables about the power and the ability that guns have... I mean, we're dealing with a totally different world. They made this shit back when people had muskets. We really need to consider that. And, by the way, they had just gotten done fighting off a totalitarian regime and had expanded and become their own country. Oh, Second Amendment of the United States Constitution reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. See, that's pretty clear. The right of the people <laughs> no, to no, no, keep no. and bear the arms shall not be state. infringed. Yeah, it's... but a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If they are a well-regulated militia. But it's not saying if. It's saying, capital letter A, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state. So they're establishing that it is important that you have a well-regulated militia being necessary. Well-regulated. That's the weird term. Well-regulated militia. What does that mean? It's a National Guard. Is that what they're saying, though? That's because what it's meant. saying the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Right. They meant the not people of the state, though. So the idea mm, that you're fighting... What does the people of the state mean? They're just people. No, because but that's what the states are. I mean, we the people. That's the country. Right, I mean, but so. this is a free a, a free state. What that means is they they worry that we might be invaded and taken over by England at the no, time. No, 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 no. The government else. or the government, any government. So it's against right. the federal government. Right. So that's a, a state being able to defend itself against the federal government because they still were lingering with that 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 from Britain. You know, I don't know if that's what they meant when they said a free state. Is that what they could pull that up again so I could see that, please. <laughs> it's. I mean, look, it, it's kind of weird arguing about this because if we, we had to do this over again, I mean, this is obviously something that was established, as we said, a long time ago. If we had to do this over again, if we had established new new amendments or new rights, I don't know how we would rate. But that's a prepositional phrase, a well-regulated militia. That means everything mm -hmm. after that is in regards to a well-regulated militia. So if I said, and then Joe, and everything in that sentence would be about Joe, it's a prepositional phrase. I mean, that, that's exactly what they mean. Well, a well-regulated militia, meaning that there's a bunch of militia, meaning regular people, civilians gathering together to form some sort of a makeshift army, yeah. being necessary to the security of a free state. Now, when they say a free state, 
This is back when what were there fucking three states or something like that I when think they thirteen, isn't? Should have been thirteen. Then. The, the first ones were thirteen, right? The first initial states. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. See, it's a fucking nobody talks like that. You fucks. You know, today in 2016, if you wrote a, a sentence like that, I'd be like, hey, bitch, what are you trying to say? You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, people, thou shalt not four score and 16 years ago. What? S speak normal, bitch. All right. It's um, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed is the one that everybody clings to. The people of the free state, though. It's just that, it, that's mm, definitely what they meant. Uh, the right because they people. did that back then. You know, they, they formulated those, those militias. Right. But they're saying shall not be infringed. The right of the people. But remember, that's the federal government shall not infringe that right against the state. No, it's not saying against the state. It's saying the people to the, protect the, the security the of, of the free state, state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Right. The people of the state. Right, but what they're saying is that was oh, you know, <laughs> annoying for people that's listening. Right. We got to do the car chase story after this that we owe everybody. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. A well-regulated militia being necessary. So they're establishing that. A, and again, if you're angry right now, you're like, "I'm you fucking I'm riding my congressman. You fucking pussies are trying to take my guns." We're just trying to we're trying to unpack this amendment. Okay, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So they're establishing that we need a well-regulated militia to make sure that we don't get taken over by tyranny. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I don't know, man. I mean, I'm not a constitutionalist by any stretch of the imagination, nor am I a scholar of the Bill of Rights. That seems pretty clear. The right shall not be infringed. Okay. So I'll give you, let's say we give you the, the right of the people is what they mean is that the people can hold the arms. Until they're needed to form this militia. Well, that's weird. But so that, scroll, that is what it sounds like to me. Hold the arms. Yeah. So the people, right of the people to keep and bear arms, mm -hmm. right? So they have the guns. Right. And so they can have them. It's just that, so that they can formulate a well-regulated militia later if needed. Oh. So it does kind of read like that as well. I don't know about that. You don't think so? No. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Right. So the people have the guns. Right. That's what I'm saying. And then the idea could be that they meant that you can have the guns in case you need to formulate the militia to fight tyranny. It could be read that way. In case? Yeah, yeah, Well, yeah. it's just not giving you any options. It's saying, shall not be infringed. Scroll down. What is it saying? What does the Second Amendment actually that is, say? It says the exact same. I was, that's what I was looking oh, for more. Is, what is the definition, a modern definition of the, the rights granted by the Second Amendment? Is there any like I'll sort of up, legal break? Nobody's agreed on this thing. <laughs> yeah. It seems like these cocksuckers that wrote that shit... <laughs> <laughs> they made it so weird. Right, but even if you can get them, like, uh -huh. they certainly weren't talking about AR-15s, and mm -hmm. they weren't envisioning a government right. with 5,000 nuclear weapons. Right. right. And they weren't envisioning 300 million people right. the idea on of, Prozac. The idea of fighting the government just really seems weird. Like, so what you're saying there, so I was in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. What you're saying then is that if they make a law... Like Trump gets in the office and he says, all right, that's it. We're going to crack down on our people. You think that I'm going to come after you for that? Come on. Come on. Like the, the, the well, some people the will. The people in our military will not do that. These generals aren't going to do that. They're not going to command their, their members to do that. You'd have a military coup. You probably would, but you will have some people that are willing right. to comply. But you are saying that your friends and brothers and sisters 
that are in the armed forces are going to turn their guns on their friends and family. Get the fuck out of here. Well, that's interesting because you could make the same argument about the police. You're saying that your friends and brothers and sisters that are in the police are going to turn their guns on the civilians. They do. They do, but that's a small amount of people that are affected. So if you're talking about affecting the entire country, then those people will have that personal effect because it's not just... They're, they're turning on their own family. Right. They're but not don't you just think turning. You make the same argument that the, a small amount of non-compliant people would be the ones that the military would have to go against. Yeah, I mean, I guess if if you have that kind of scenario, sure. It's kind of but the same. If they're literally, say, they were to come take all the guns, right? Right, and they were going to do it by force. Right. You're also saying this huge force for one. The military's not allowed to operate on our soil. But they already do. They're already rolling the national guard through cities. If you look at oh no like, no no, no. Yeah, any sort of national guard is not unrest, the military. Well, you that's could, a well-regulated militia. Yeah, but you, <laughs> look, I mean, when you look at the tanks and some of the 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 fucking military vehicles that they're using in some of these riot drills, well, militarization of military police is, is a separate. That's a separate argument. Well, it is a separate argument, but it becomes military then. I mean, you're talking about war machines. Sure, that's something that clearly wasn't envisioned. And yeah. so, I would rather you didn't open up that can. can that's of another worms. can of worms, man. <laughs> Fuck. Where is this going, right? Yeah, this is, it's a very unusual sort of a debate because I see both sides. I absolutely see both sides. Just remember that equation, though. The both sides of that equation, while they can be logical, one side of that equation is death. Well, and the other argument would be that protecting yourself against death is a right. But we know that if you want to have a safer society, if you want to live in Australia, you have to get rid of the goddamn guns. Yeah, but Australia is so different than I don't, us. I just it's don't buy so that. It's so small. I don't buy that. Well, so, well, so we do buy, sample- buy it this way. Buy it this way. How many mass shootings have there ever been in California besides San Bernardino? Take San Bernardino out of the mix. How well, many have we add, had? Let's add in black people in the hood that we don't hear about. Mm, okay. Mass shootings. Yeah, daily yeah. in this country, daily. So you're going to get mm. them every you know week or two weeks in California. Do they really get them every week or two weeks in of California? Course. Yeah, you just don't hear about them because you're talking. It's because they happen in Compton. No one gives a shit. Right, and you're you're talking about people who are criminals shooting other criminals, and that's one of the arguments that gun control, anti-gun control people use against people that talk about how many people get shot. Is how many people like when you look at the numbers of people that get shot in this country. They're also calculating the number of people that are shot by law enforcement officers. No, they don't. Oh, sure they do. No, they don't even get counted as hot. They don't even get reported to the FBI. The Guardian just figured out how many people got shot. The 2015 is the first year we figured out how many people got shot by police in this country. Okay, but it is 2016, and we do calculate oh, that. Now. No, the newspaper does it. The okay. federal government or nobody but does when you this. look up statistics of how many people are killed by guns every year, they do include bad guys killed by cops. No. What? No. So this let me is an for, argument that Ted Nugent. These and, don't count as homicides either. Well, we're not talking about homicides. We're just talking about if they kill them, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. No, Why? it doesn't count against our homicide count because it's considered justified. Well, it's justified not, homicides don't count. But deaths, they don't. I don't think they use the word homicide when they're counting firearm deaths. Mm, interesting point. Let's follow that up. Because this is what uh, Ted Nugent and Piers Morgan. I can't believe I'm using Ted Nugent as an example. Or Piers Morgan. Or Piers. Well, he's a piece of shit, but. He, what his argument with Ted Nugent, he got shredded in that argument because he, he went into it unarmed with facts and Nugent spews this out every 
point he can. And by the way, he would argue with you all day. Sure, but that's that's arguing with a crazy person. He's allegedly He's allegedly crazy. a little crazy. Let's not go with allegedly. <laughs> There's certain people I'm willing to call out from time to time. That'd be one of them. You think Ted Nugent is crazy? Oh, what do you, crazy? What do you think is crazy about him? Have you seen him talk? Like yes. he's clearly crazy. He's going to argue that until the end of the day. You could, he's one of those people you can put the evidence in front of him day in and day out, and he'll just move the goalposts and move the goalposts, and no one's interested in having an argument with somebody that's just going to continually move goalposts. I don't know about all that. I don't know if he would move the goalposts. Well, let's see. He, the one thing that he makes coherent arguments about is, in fact, against gun control. What, what do we got there, Jamie? Um, I'm halfway looking through something, but I got this uh, from the Washington Post, this article that starts with, the year of 1,000 people nearly being shot by police. That sound is annoying. But um, it says right here, they sought to compile a record of every fatal police shooting in the nation as of t- in 2015, something no government agency had done. It started after Michael Brown's shooting. That uh, was when they started looking into it. So British <clears throat> newspaper did that. Goddamn commies, or whatever they are. It's Washington Post. Well, uh, the Post so- sought to compile a record. This is uh, Washington Post. Yeah, uh, the Guardian started it. Mm-hmm. But it says the Post sought to compile mm-hmm. a record of every fatal police shooting in the nation in 2015, something no government agency had done. The project began after a police officer shot and killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in August of 2014, provoking several nights of fiery riots, blah, blah, blah. Race remains the most volatile flashpoint in any accounting of police shooting, although black men make up only 6% of the U.S. population. They account for 40% of the unarmed men shot to death by police this year. The Post database shows... In the majority of cases which police shot and killed a person who had attacked someone with a weapon or brandished a gun, the person who was shot was white. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. In the majority of cases in which police shot and killed a person who had attacked someone with a weapon or brandished a gun, the person who was shot was white. But a huge disproportionate number, three in five of those killed after exhibiting less threatening behavior, were black or Hispanic. So meaning they valued the life less of people who were black or Hispanic. They were quicker to shoot them with less threatening behavior than they would with white people. Regardless of, regardless of race, in more than a quarter of the cases, the fatal encounter involved officers pursuing someone on foot or by car, making chases one of the most common scenarios in the data. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting that it's shooting more white people. But I guess there are more white people. You have to shoot more white people. Because there's more white people. It's actually some percent of the population. It's probably more than that, right? I don't know. How many white people are there? It's it's getting down. It's going down. Slowly brown people are fucking their way up (laughs) to the top. (laughs) Well, uh, we we joke about that. How? What is that movie um, where everything goes crazy? Oh, God. Stupid. Come on. Which one? Michael Douglas? No. No. uh, The Purge? No, oh, the silly oh one. idiocracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, so like the silly one. <laughs> we know, we know that the more educated someone is, the less kids they have. Right. And as soon as you do that, you go, oh no, we're fucked. All the smart people don't have kids. Right. And everybody that's poor has more kids. Mm-hmm. So like that's one another reason why we have to educate. Yeah. Well, people. that's the counter to overpopulation. That when they look at the charts and graphs, that when you uh, in, in industrialized nations, when they become more closer to the first world, they have less children. Mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's also they're also fucking working more and yeah. they're grinding. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily good. Might might be better off being poor with a bunch of kids and be happy. All right, so we know that the most likely time to get to a shooting is in a chase. 
Yeah. So we owe a chase story, and we should lighten this yes. shit up a little bit. Okay. Let's. So this is a story. <laughs> this is a story that we just got sidetracked from the the first conversation. Right. We were in the middle of talking about it, and we never got to it. Right. So, all right. Uh, we were talking, Jamie and I, earlier about it. It'd probably be pretty cool. We can probably pull this up on street maps. So let's go to the 1800 block of West Pratt. We can actually look at it. Okay. It'd be interesting. So anybody who's got their finger on the send button right now, ready to send an evil email or a Twitter, just relax. This is a debate, folks. This is a conversation. I know you wish you were here so you could yell at Mike or me. I don't know. You said a pretty, uh, you made a couple points that I didn't even think about that were pretty darn liberal. Uh, I'm pretty liberal. I'm a fucking confusing motherfucker if you're trying to pigeonhole me. Okay. I'm, a, a, I'm a liberal hippie who owns guns and hunts and loves weed and gay people. I love, tr I love everybody. All right. Can I we, really do. Can we go to... Okay, so this okay. is the... Uh, right, so go down to that red awning and turn around. First of all, how dope is Google Maps? It's wild. crazy. We're, we're traveling through Baltimore right now on Jamie's computer. This is madness. When we're seeing people's license plates and shit, that's so weird that they can do that. They can just zoom in. Okay. They've caught people coming out of whorehouses and what? shit. What? Yeah, they have. People have sued. Because <laughs> the Google car drove yeah, by? Yeah, the Google car drove by right when they are just lighting up a cigarette. <laughs> All right, face to the left, Jamie. Okay, so this is a really dilapidated neighborhood in Baltimore. We don't need to necessarily see it, but we're dealing with right. D-A space H-O-O-D. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go left. I go down the street a little bit more. By the so, way, since we're talking about Baltimore, shout out to my brother, John Rollo of Baltimore. All right. So this is one of my ground control MMA. Go there. Learn how to fight. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to tell the story. If I could get my, my bearings right, because it doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to pull it off. It's okay. All right. So anyway, I'll just tell the story. So one of my favorite times ever, uh, best night I ever had as a cop. We were working the Major K Squad, and we had been assigned a, a new uh, VRO, which is a violent repeat offender target to go after. You're going to hear a lot of these. Uh, in, in A lot of chiefs are starting to push this out again, which is the violent repeat offender, where they, they have people with... Um, so they, they do like this predictiveness that these are the people that were, are likely to get shot or likely to do shootings or something like that. So we want to focus all of our enforcement efforts on them to get them on anything. Um, doesn't work. But regardless, that's what I was doing at the time. And we had a guy set up to the, there's a bar. And at the bar, uh, we knew that this gang would go in and out of this bar. So we had a guy sit in covert in a van and watch the bar because we our whole intent was to take picture, you know, take pictures, document who was going in, try and see some associations. And me and another car, we were hiding away, just waiting to see what he would report. Maybe we could follow somebody, things like that. And we're talking, and it's been hours. We're on like hour ten, sitting there, nothing going on. And we had a secure channel, so we could just talk back and forth on our radio. And they're talking about sports or something. It had to be soccer or baseball because it was something I didn't give a shit about. So everybody's bitching, going back on the radio, just talking, trying to pass the time. And then the guy watching in covert, he goes, 
finally hear him coming around. He's like, guys, would you shut the fuck up? Shut up. They're robbing the store next to me right now. I'm watching them. I can see that it's a silver 38 in the dude's hand robbing the store. Shut the fuck up and get over here. So we're like, all right, all right, all right, all right. So he's calling it out, and these guys running. They get into a getaway car and go around the block, and we get behind them. So we're following them, and they, you know, this is a fresh robbery. So they got handguns in the car and everything. Do they know you're following them? No. So we have unmarked cars, and we're following behind him. And we're in this area where uh, you have the uh, one district to the left, uh, to the west, the southwest. You have the western district to the north, and you have the southern to the left. So they call it the tri-district, but we're kind of in this area where our communications are going to be weird because these are all different channels. So I'm riding with the sergeant. I was a, a detective at the time. And I say to him, uh, I'm going to get on the southern channel. You get on the southwest and coordinate. That way we can call this out. So I get on the radio and I'm calling. I'm like, I need a 1031 uh, on the southern channel. And everybody keeps talking. I'm like, we're trying to follow him. I need a 1031 on the southern channel. And I look at him I'm like, why the fuck won't they shut up? Like, I don't understand. He's like, because it's a 1033, you fucking asshole. Like, Oh, okay. So I get on the radio. All right, 1033. Yeah, I don't even know what a 1031 is to this day. So so 1033 is an emergency. So I get on there, and we're we're calling it out. The car is going west down uh, Lombard, and we're we're following it, and we're coming up to the shopping center. Turns left on the shopping center. The car is full of people. It gets to the goes through the shopping center, and it stops at a stop sign. But there's a car in front of it, and we're thinking, all right, we're gonna have to light it up here, but that car, like, it always moves, right? As soon as we hit the lights, you can, of course. You can bet that car is going to move. Right. So we hit the lights anyway, and the car stops in the front where the oh, stop side is. Oh, shit. So they can't get past. Right. So they all bail out. Uh, one runs to the There's four people in the car. One goes one way. One goes back the other way. One goes <laughs> forward. One goes behind. And I jump out of the car because... Uh, uh, Let's all right. So I leave my radio by accident. I drop it oh, because le- let's be honest. I, I see a guy running with a gun out of a car, and I, I'm still like in jackrabbit mode. You know, I'm I'm going. I'm, well, that's when people I, shoot people, right? I'm get, right. I'm yeah. getting him. So I take off without the gu- without my radio, chasing this dude going behind the shopping center. The sergeant he forgot to put the car in park. So he knows I don't have my radio. He's starting to panic about where I'm going. He has to dive back into the car to put it on park so it doesn't hit the, the suspect's car and then the non-suspect car in front of them. The, the, everybody goes running. I, I'm chasing behind him, and I've got my gun out, and I'm running, and I'm saying, you know, hey, I'm going to fucking shoot. Yo, you better stop now. But I could tell he, when he's running, it's fucking pure panic. Like, I had a moment of empathy for him. Like you could, he was just like, oh, fuck, 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 running with that gun in his hand. And I'm like, oh, you better drop it. We're running. Some guy comes out of the woods from behind the shopping center. It's a fucking cop from the Southwest who heard us on the radio <laughs> playing clothes cop. So the guy throws the gun and he tries to throw it up onto the roof of the building, but it like pathetically just hits the building and <laughs> falls down. And, and uh, the guy coming out of the woods, I yell at him to get him while I run and back, go back and get the gun. You got to get the gun first uh, if right. you're smart because that could end up with somebody else's hands or, or whatever. And we get him back. And so at that moment, unbeknownst to me, all those districts 
were like all coordinated. It was like this moment of, of serendipity and policing. Southern District Patrol came up and got one of the guys and like Western Patrol got one of the guys and Southwest Commander was in the area was there and that drug unit was there helping me. And we caught every single person, bring them back. We got like four guns. We get everything. We roll them over. It's the fucking people we were looking for. By mere coincidence, half the gang that we were looking for to go into the bar, robbed the store that was next to our guy in covert, and we started our case there, which ended up being completely successful because we had this huge jump start of just dumbass luck. That does sound like dumbass luck because you called 1031 instead of 1033, <laughs> you forgot to put the car in park, you left your radio behind. That, and that's typical. You know, so that's the way it is. And that's a situation where you do shoot. Like, people shoot in that situation. Right. But think, people think I haven't been there. Who are these you know? people that think you haven't been ah, there? You know who they are. All over the internet. The Twitter trolls and stuff. Or, or people that want to get credit to it. Other cops. You know, they think, oh, you're just talking about Baltimore. You've never actually done anything. What did you actually do? And those are the situations where you get into these shootings right where you could have right. easily shot that guy who was running with the gun and that's what right. the statistics show happens a lot of the time that would have dramatically affected me dramatically affected him and everyone around but what this kid was doing in the end was being part of a drug deal trying to do robberies trying to fucking eat and survive and yet we had those guns so you have this poverty and you have this fighting for resources and so they chose that to, to rob the store and to be in, in in these gangs but if they didn't have those guns how differently would that have been probably quite a bit yeah so so when you talk about saturation i mean like look in that incident we got lucky everything went fine and it had potential to fall apart luckily we were all competent in, in that unit but sort of <laughs> thanks <laughs> I was the youngest one. I was the, I was the rookie. Cut me some slack. Uh, but you had, you know, 30 guns right. going around in that situation. And it's just like, oh, you just don't, like, England doesn't do this. Mm -hmm. You don't see other countries like this, where this all could have just went bonkers because we're trying to respond to a situation in a way, go after people and put them in cells because we have this, these guns everywhere and they're fighting for these resources, but that's where we have to stop and say, why are they here? Right. What got us to this point? Instead, what we continue to do is we just throw that group into jail and the very next time, it took us like six months to take the whole group down. We got everybody federally indicted. But as soon as we do that, the next group just steps up because we didn't take a moment to look at the causation. Well, you know the old argument, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns. Right. Well, I mean, that's circular logic, too. It is, but when you're dealing with a supply that already exists in the hundreds of millions, it's pretty logical, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. But You'd have to go door to door and dig into people's basements. Right, but if you make guns all legal, then, <clears throat> uh, then the only people that have guns are law-abiding people. What do you mean? Right. No. If right, you make, guns... make it completely legal. Well, if you... Completely legal. Yeah, so that's for why criminals? it's a circular. Is that what you mean? Yeah, so that's why it's a circular logic. But so. no, because those, the criminals are still criminals, even if the guns are legal. It's not everyone's not a law-abiding citizen that has a gun. If you give a gun to a criminal, right? But if you don't have the law in place to make it criminal, uh huh. And that's the thing we're saying. Well, only bad guys will have guns if we outlaw them all. Right. Well, yeah, because we outlawed them all. I mean, that's just 
It's, it's circular logic. So if we have the law first, because you're not changing the gun ownership, you're just changing the law. Right, but you're already we've already made it illegal for people that are felons to possess firearms. <clears throat> yeah, but when you have that level of saturation, obviously it doesn't work, right? Right, but it gets back to the same issue. Like, how would you ever possibly... It's like trying to get, you know, it's like taking a bucket of water and throwing it into the ocean and trying to get that fresh water out. Like, how do you get out the guns that are in this... You stop adding salt. So that's stop the thing. It's like we can't instantly guns. solve it. We just have to stop doing it the wrong way. That's like the drug war. I mean, you, you've been into the drug war, so you know without a doubt it doesn't work. But what are we still doing? And like, it's not well, even... we're slowly moving away from that. Sure. I mean, but there's... we can stop right now. I mean, like, you can literally just stop. I mean, just as quickly as we started it, we can say, okay, we're not going to imprison people for those offenses. If they get into crime and they shoot somebody, well, then go after them for the shooting. Mm-hmm. But what we do is we put that law in there and, and we make it, you know, we're like we're creating this. We know what's wrong and we know to just stop this. So with the guns, you know, if you just stop manufacturing them, we'll get somewhere. If you just stop locking people up for the drug war, we'll get somewhere in improving that. But we're not. We're just keep doing the same. Th- so it's been a year since I was here and we discussed these drug war issues. Mm-hmm. We haven't really moved the bar much. Well, the only thing that it is up for ballot in several different states, marijuana, of course, not not other drugs, and slowly but surely it will become legal throughout the United States, most likely. Now Washington, D.C. is legal. There's a lot of places that are legal now that weren't legal before, and then it's on the ballot in November in California and several other states, I believe. Is there other states as well? But Cal- marijuana is just one really benign law i mean it's really it's it's a rather benign substance in many ways it's not it's not a dangerous thing it's not a a real threat or a harm to society guns are way more dangerous sure so so moving that changing that but we're creating that you know so we create the guns are being used because Mm -hmm. of the drug war right and and then we have people that are dying over heroin overdoses Mm -hmm. because of the drug war notice we've had a lot of improvements on people dying over heroin overdoses now that it's in massachusetts and stuff what do you mean in massachusetts they are uh like the cops uh aren't arresting there's a there's a chief there that decided he was going to be smart and he wasn't going to lock up the heroin users. He was going to get them into treatment. Mm. He has had excellent success. Well, the heroin problem, that was uh, one, of, one of those CNN shows was detailing what actually went, went down. Oh, it was Anthony Bourdain's show. They were talking about how what, what really happened was so many people got addicted to Oxycontins because of prescription drug uh, companies pushing that shit where people, you know, people have like little small minor injuries and they're prescribing pills that are opiates and highly addictive they're no different than heroin yeah i mean like literally they're heroin yeah and and so that's money and politics issue again yeah we're we're not fighting the those drug dealers who are getting everybody uh hooked on heroin we're fighting the drug dealers that are in the city still yeah that's a gigantic issue of Mm -hmm. course um and then these people when they started to crack down on oxycontins that is when heroin moved in to take its place because these people were sick. They needed their pills. Right. They didn't get their pills, so then they got heroin instead. Right. Yeah. I don't know. But, I mean, so... Yeah, You want to move on to some reform measures or what's been going on the last year? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right, so let's talk about what happened as the year has gone on. 
Um, after I left here, uh, obviously people picked up and had that, you know, the Joe Rogan effect that they, everybody always talks about. When they, when, after they talk to you, other people started to pay attention. And I went back to Baltimore and, and this dude sends me an email and says they arrange it through Leap that he's going to come visit me and he wants to talk about a movie. Oh, Jesus. And so he comes. That's how they corrupt you. <laughs> he comes. Hollywood gets you. And we talk about some of these ideas. A very good movie idea that he has, trying to kind of put some of these things into an emotional appeal that people can understand and, and comes close to them. But what that did was is it, it uh, pushed me to get more involved in Baltimore so I could uh, get the p- other people involved in the project that would have good ideas and would really know the streets well and would know the activism path and what was going on with Black Lives Matter and everything in there. And so I've reached out to a bunch of the activists and we started forming these tight knit groups and come to find out this dude doing the movie is Matthew Kosovich. And I don't know if he's going to do it yet or not, but he's like this big star in France and thinking about doing a sequel to a movie he made called La Haine which uh, really talks about these kind of things in France. France had a very similar hypersegregation problems and ghettoization 20 years ago and ended up having riots. And they, they did a lot to fix it. And that's what, what he's kind of doing like a 20-year reunion of that. But getting involved in Baltimore and meeting everybody, I really have been like in a school um, uh, uh, of understanding of what the cities need and what people are trying to fight for and what the Black Lives Matter movement really means. Um, I, I just didn't, I, I had all a lot of those same preconceived notions of like, you know, being a white hero kind of thing where you go and you help and like you're bringing your skills down and you don't realize the things you're saying and how you play into to privilege and things like that. And getting going in there with them, uh, my my walls against Muslims got got torn down because I ended up meeting Muslim activists who were really treat using religion to uh, do the, the the right things, you know, the good things, the selective, of course, but getting involved in, in the movement to the point where uh, we're having these these groups and we're doing things like. Uh, having panel discussions and we did like uh, stop and frisk for people so that they would see what it was like to actually have somebody come up on you and search through your pockets. And uh, we've been doing documentaries. Uh, We've been doing protesting where there's a, I met this lady, Tawanda Jones, who her brother was killed by Baltimore police officers a couple years ago. And she's been protesting every single Wednesday for two and a half years, fighting for her brother, Tyrone West. And I guess that's why they do it on Wednesdays. And he, uh, he was beaten to death by Baltimore cops, like literally beaten to death. And we wanted to have things like where we say, why don't we have people protesting good? Why is it always got to be like burning down the CVS or something like that? Where's all the good people? And like, I was just flabbergasted that they were everywhere in, in, in what everyone thinks is the worst of neighborhoods was just filled with people trying to do the right thing and trying to to fight for justice and doing it in the most peaceful manner. Her brother was beaten to death by cops. And what she does is peacefully protests every Wednesday for two and a half years and doesn't get any attention for that. When they have other cops that were 
the, those same cops uh, beat this guy, Abdul Salam, uh, in, in front of his kid doing the exact same kind of, of aggressive enforcement. And it, it, what it opens up, uh, kind of winded way of going about it, is I got to see the other side. And that really has pr- affected me. That being a cop, you, you, you lock them up and you put them into the cell or, or you take them to court and the case goes or whatever. And you don't think about what that does on the other end. You never see and then I got involved in the communities and I saw the other side. I saw what it was like for a guy that came back from being in prison and in solitary confinement for three years and having no hopes of, of uh, resources, like not getting him jobs and having to sh- fight just to get anything because he had that, that record. Uh, you, you get to see that you know, those people you locked up, like they have families who were profoundly affected by everything that happened and they're gone for these years. And it's just, it's, it's been really like, I get like aggressive, and when we're talking about these conversations about guns, and like, because those deaths on that other side of that equation, that shit became real as can be to me. Like, those are people now that I know, and I know the families of the uh, of people who were on the other side of that, and it's really pushing that. That's what we 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 need to just really do. We gotta stop being these tribal creatures that can only see the those fellow humans that are right with us that we associate as being our team. Like we're all that team, and we have to, we have to start having empathy for what these things do to other people. We have to see this. Cops don't see what their actions do in order to step up and say, "Hey, we shouldn't be doing this. We have to get out of this denial bubble." And being involved in the city has just given me this huge check on, on, on all my privileges and everything that we have, we don't understand how much advantages we have in life. It's, it's, it's ridiculous the amount of factors that people have to fight against that we can't even register. And this is all fairly new to you? Yeah, man. I mean, like, I saw it evidentially, but to see it in person... Like the work that, so the photographer Devin Allen, uh, you can pull up um, Devin Allen. He he took a picture of my daughter that's from a protest that's going to be in. And uh, he's doing this project now where he took the Time Magazine cover uh, shoot. So if you ever saw the Time Magazine during the uprising where it says 1968 and it's crossed out and says 2016 because mm-hmm. it looks, he took that picture as a, as a, a young black kid that used to be a drug dealer who picked up a camera as his identity project kind of thing. He didn't know what an identity project was at that time. I didn't know what an identity project was at that time. But he picked up the camera and started taking pictures, and he got that picture. And he's well-known now, but what he did was is he took that, and now he used the publicity from all that, and he gets... So this is, this is Devin Allen. He gets all these... Um, he started this project at this community development called Penn North. And he collects cameras now for all these kids. Not that he's getting paid. He collects cameras from around the world, brings it in, and now he runs a thing going through in Sandtown, Winchester, where Freddie Gray was killed. He takes, takes those kids in and teaches them photography and gives them that project so they have something they can grip upon on and they have something they can build 
up on. But what, what's sad about that is that this is Devin, who has no resources, who is the kid who was a drug dealer, who has everything bothering him, and he is investing in those communities and trying to provide those things to give people the, that, that identity where they can climb out of it and they can become, they can see that vision of being a contributing member to society. And like, that's what we all have to do to give back these neighborhoods. That's part of the way of fixing it is if when people want to help, you literally have to go down there and say, how can I help and do things like that? Because what he's revealing is that we all have a skill. His skill is photography, but your skill is, is hunting or comedy or talking or however you want to go. You have these skills that you can teach. And you can pass on so other people can see an identity. Some people can sew. Some people can do uh, whatever it is. We all have these skills. And that's like how we help. If you want to be somebody that helps these cities, you go down there and you help supply that identity. I could just see how many white knights are saying, I'm going down to the hood right now and I'm going to help. We're going to just well, find them fucked up. No, no pants. But, but missing like, teeth. So at Penn North... <laughs> We created this thing that, well, they created this thing called the safe zone. And what that is, is it was all worked out with everybody. You got to treat everybody like humans. They worked out with the, with the drug dealers and everything that's going on. And they participate in keeping this area of the city completely safe so that everybody can come down there. And you would, if you go to Baltimore, you want to be a white knight, you come down to Baltimore, reach out to an activist, and you want to help. It's not dangerous. You will be fine. And there are plenty of people that will help you and guide you through on what you can do to contribute to make our society a, a, a more whole place. Well, obviously, Baltimore is on the other side of the country. There's got to be places around here that uh, need some sort of a similar situation. doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. They're all the same. All these cities are the same. They're facing all the same problems. And uh, that has, has helped me build this reform measure. So my application for Chicago is completely up. If you want to pull up my website, it's michaelawoodjr.net. Let me ask you this. Had you gotten the position in Chicago, you were trying to be the police chief of police in Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. If you had gotten that position in Chicago, what would you do? What is your idea? I mean, I'm sure you have a grand plan. Right. So there's 38 pages of that okay. <laughs> on this. But uh, if you could kind of uh, break right. it down so, for us. Well, the, the first thing we have to do is... We have to give that power away. And I think that's a condition that I have to have in order to take the job. Now, I have a friend uh, who was actually a driver when we were in Chicago who was a cop. Uh, and he told me that what's going on in Chicago was that they had some pretty high-level drug dealers and gang leaders. And then they caught those guys and imprisoned them. And when they imprisoned them, it created a power vacuum. And in that power vacuum... Over the last few years, you're seeing significant ramp up in crime where people try to take over these areas that were under control by other people. Similar to what happens when you see when we take over countries like Libya, creates this power vacuum. And now you have a case to, to almost you say, well, it's worse without Gaddafi than it was with mm -hmm. him. That's sort of what this guy was telling me about Chicago. Is that accurate? It's possible. Um one of the big problems with policing is we think we can narrow things down and we can, like, find a sole causation. Right. And there just simply isn't any sole causations. There's never sole causation in anything when you're dealing with a mass amount of human beings. Uh, everybody has different reasons. You're not going to be able to do everything perfectly. And, and those things can happen. Perfectly uh, plausible that it could have happened. A weird theory that I've started to uh, recognize is that 
Uh, actually, in this study, they, uh, the Stephanie DeLuca study, they talk a lot about how um, these kids uh, are really more passionate now and they get exposed to more. And you can see that their work ethic is actually higher than it was. We think that they're not working, but they're achieving things at three to four hundred percent of what their parents achieved. So these kids are ambitious. And so if you don't have any other options around, you have a more ambitious population that's now doing drug dealing and taking over territory. What do you mean by they're achieving things three to four hundred percent more than their right? So have? you have um, so uh, the average in um, I want to go like in the nineties for for high school diplomas and college for residents of a neighborhood like Sandtown or these East and West Baltimore neighborhoods, worst that you can imagine in your head uh, as far as resources go. They the, these kids are actually achieving. Uh, so say their their parents got ten percent high school diplomas. These guys are getting forty percent high school diplomas. Their parents were getting uh, you know two percent college degrees. These guys are at like 25, 30% college degrees. So they're really excelling, but they're not achieving because of all these other barriers, as you know. Um, so a, a guy, a black guy with a college degree is slightly less likely to be employed than a white guy with a high school diploma and a criminal record. So even the, they're getting these promises that if they play by the rules, then they'll get these things at the end, just like poor white American West Virginia is. And what happens, though, is they're being they, they see these examples of with social media or whatever, and they're understanding that if they push hard, that's the, they're told they're push hard and they achieve these things, then they'll get these rewards. But they're not getting these rewards. They're just not there. So if you have a more ambitious population and they're turning to drug dealing and to crime, well, it's just as likely that they're also more ambitious and dedicated to their criminal endeavors as they were to their college achievement. Right. So they're better criminals because they're working harder yeah, in school. Each generation improves, right? <clears throat> yeah. Is there, but is there any improvement in, in terms of crime rates? Well, I mean, there, there are. Crime is still dramatically dropping. And we, are, we live in the safest era in human history right now. Uh, we get caught up in a lot yeah. of this. And that, that, I mean, sure, that's a, I guess that's a weird argument for the gun guys where they can just say, hey, yeah. we are in the safest time in history ever. So we have to not get caught up in the fact that, it, like you said, the odds of things happen, especially compared to the rest of history. Because uh, of the sheer numbers you're dealing with. Well, it would seem like crime, uh, the percentage of people taking crime have probably still are, are about the same and then or, or the amount are the same but the population has grown right so you have a lot lot less crime percentage wise right than you ever have before but if your criminals are that much better well they're still going to be ambitious but are they that much better it seems like it's so much easier to catch them doing something now than ever before other than physically catch them but I mean, it's so much easier to. No, that's that's really contrary to evidence. So really, yeah. I mean, homicide clearance rates from the eighties were in eighty ninety percent. Now they're down to thirty to forty five percent. What is that from? I, I think that's from a breakdown of community relations because mm. we think that cop, cops uh, cops aren't the answer. The community is always the answer. And so if you want to solve a crime, you have to have these good relationships with your communities in order for them to even trust you. Otherwise, the streets are just going to handle it themselves, right? If the police don't provide justice, well, then they will. 
Right. So if they can't turn to the police, you, you, that's another factor. You get there's tons of factors in here, and a lot of arguments could be made for what it is. But the the conviction rate has dropped dramatically, and and the homicide clearance rate has dropped dramatically. Police are not solving crimes at the rate they used to. Now, when you look at an area like Chicago that has a lot of violence connected to the drug war or to the drug trade, I should say, illegal drug selling. It's also Not a lack really? of resources, too, though. So right. the drug trade fills things. in for a lack of that's resources. That's a very good point. And that's a point that doesn't get addressed that often, right? That's a, that's a very good point. Now, what can be done? What would you have done had you got that position? Well, well so the first thing I have to do, here, here's my model. And my okay. fundamental model is, is uh, think if you had a business and you have a, a board. You, know, you have your board of trustees or whatever you want to call it. I want to be a civilian leader of the police department, like a CEO, and I want to have like officially 49% of the power of the agency. And then we have like seven people on this panel who come from the city, who live in these neighborhoods. I don't, not sure precisely how we pick them out. We can't appoint them because then they just become cronies. Um, we have some issues with voting that, that we may have to work out the details on. But the, the ultimate principle is that we would have the majority of that board would be from the poorest of the neighborhoods around so you would create a board and what would what would be the picking criteria to create this board would it be you and other police officers would no, it be no this has to be the civilians so the civilians the pick the people that are on yeah i think they would have to pick them themselves i think i think we have to have a vote i, I this is hmm. i don't have that thought completely okay. out right yet. okay uh, but the, the majority has to come from the poor populations covering the base of whatever is good for the weakest among us is good for the strongest among us and then those boards, while I run the agency, I can only argue to them. They have 51% of the control. I have all these things I want to argue for. Right. But it's fundamentally not my agency. Okay. So the, you would almost give most of the control to the rest of the people and they would work with you. Right. So they're, I'm the CEO. They're the board. They're going to come up with that. We're all going to discuss how we want to approach issues. And I'm going to bring my science. I'm going to make my cases as much as I can on the right way to do things. But if they want to do things another way, it's their agency. And that's, the, that's what Has I would have to do. Has that ever been done anywhere? Not that I'm aware of. So your, your idea is so radical and so way out there. And that's part of the problem with getting people to accept it. Right. So they would have to take a, a huge chance. And if it failed, it would be their failure Whereas if it fails right now and now, they do the business trick. as usual. Here's the trick, Joe. Okay. It's a total cop-out in a manner because the failure isn't my fault. Right, but I'm saying- The failure would be the board's fault because they have the agency. So if the people okay. are responsible, they can't bitch at the mayor right. because they did it. It's their agency. It's my job to serve them. It's not my job to serve a mayor. Right. It's my job to serve them and carry out what they want to achieve. So I will work at achieving what they want to achieve and establishing the milestones and incentives that they think are better for their neighborhood because they may do things which would dramatically uh, have impacts like such as hiring. Like so right now guys won't hire because they have a drug complaint or something like that or they have a prior arrest record. Well, I think if you get all those poor neighborhoods together, they're going to say, look, we know that's, that's bullcrap. Like, that arrest doesn't stop you from being a good cop. That's ridiculous. And we can let those people in, and they can take that risk as a whole community. We can decide these things. So you're saying make former 
prisoners or former criminals, turn them into police officers. <laughs> Not that far. But sure, I mean, some of them. So the difference between them and me, we know, is the color of my skin in the neighborhood I grew up in. I could have easily had the criminal record that they have. I think pretty much anybody could. Yeah. Right? right. I mean, that's and that's a hard pill to swallow for folks who have that pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. But a lot of who you are and what you are is luck. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Just being born in this country. Yeah. Right. An extreme yeah. advantage. Yeah. Being born poor in this country is really way luckier than being born in the middle class in a lot of other countries. Right. So this board that we have, how long do you think it's going to take before they end the drug war? Well, it's going to take a day. Yeah, but they can't do that because it's a federal decision. And well, especially the, you're talking the, about the city of, of Chicago, which is not even the state of Illinois. Of course we can. We can? Yeah. Who's going to stop you? Well, the federal government? We don't state? enforce laws. We don't enforce your law, period. Boy, good luck trying to pull that That's off. It's legal. The yeah? feds have to come in and do it themselves. The feds would have to come in and enforce the laws They can themselves. come in and do it. Right, but right. they that's don't what have they do, That's what they were doing in Colorado for a while. Yeah, they tried that. It didn't yeah. work out. Right. Well, Colorado's a perfect example where the money was so good with the plan that was initiated where they're they're making more money from taxes with marijuana than they ever did with alcohol, which is bananas. Beyond the money, you have a reduction in crime and in juvenile usage of marijuana. And in drunk driving. Yes. Yeah, lowest instances of drunk driving in more than a decade. It's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting because it just shows you. But it was predictable. Yes. Well, for people like you or I, but not for the people that were arguing against it. They thought it was going to be chaos and hippies and they're going to light the town on fire and fuck each other in the streets. And everybody thought it was going to be horrible. But you're talking about a different drug when you're talking about Chicago. You're talking about heroin and you're talking about cocaine. You're talking about methamphetamine. You're talking about MDMA. Mm -hmm. These are different drugs and they have health consequences as well. So the legalization or the prohibition, what, what, the, the play, what they have right now is obviously not working. The real problem would be if they decided to not enforce the drug laws and they decided to in some way, you know, air quotes, legalize these drugs. What would take place is you're going to have some blame be placed on some deaths on your new laws and that's going to be paraded out in front of you this is you're responsible for the death of this young girl she never tried heroin but because it was available at 7-eleven she started snorting it and now she's dead somebody can say that, that. Um, yeah. you're gonna get that th that's not the the model the model so you have prohibition and we like we were saying earlier you know what what prohibition does is just determining that they sell it okay it takes the hands and puts it into the black market yes so well, yeah, heroin is a terrible drug, but what makes heroin so bad is its lack of purity and the environment in which you, you get it. Well, also the addictive properties of it, which is why sure. Oxycontin, even though it's pure and very measurable, still has a terrifying effect. Right, but what kind of consequence did you say that was? You said it was a health consequence. Well, it has a it has but a law consequence. But it's not a criminal consequence unless we make it one. Do. Well, oxycontin certainly do. There's a lot of people that get arrested for illegally possessing and selling and distributing. It's a huge issue. Right, right, right. I understand. I, I mean the drugs. Period. Oh, right. They're All a health drugs. issue. Yes. They're not a criminal issue. They're not a prison issue. They're a public health issue. So we treat that with health professionals, not with jail cells and, and, and police. So. While may, it's not like I'm saying that the drug dealers can go out there and, and just deal it. That's not what I want. I want a doctor 
handling everything. I want it moved into just no different than alcohol. Well, the problem with the doctor handling it is that's what happened in Florida. And what happened in Florida, they developed this environment where they didn't have a database, where they, the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies were all in cahoots. And they said, look, let's just sell the shit out of this. And the statistics were staggering. There was more prescriptions for Oxycontins and opiate painkillers in Florida than the rest of the United States combined. Yeah, I know. That is nuts. But what were they doing with it? They were selling it. They were taking it. They were selling they were it illegally. It around. They right. were, the um, Oxycontin Express, that documentary that showed that these people were bringing it from Florida upstate into Georgia and Kentucky. Right. But they don't Ohio. have that market. They wouldn't have that market in Chicago with me. Right. So Florida couldn't do that because you wouldn't have a market to sell it in. So the only reason that that's I'm confused. Yeah, How because the that? only How reason to take away the market, the only reason that exists right. is because they can go sell it on the black market. So if you take away the black market as being the distributor, mm -hmm. then so you would allow people to just sell it. No, no, no. Only doctors. Only doctors. Right, but, for those certain drugs. For, so cannabis right. or something like that, we need to put in a, in, a, in a model similar. And we have things in like Portugal, where what Portugal does is they just decriminalize it. Mm -hmm. So they don't put people in prison cells for possessing it. And if you want to still go after the dealers as a half measure, you know, like I, that's a half measure I'd have to swallow that mm -hmm. I don't completely believe in. But we can work those things out. Me and you, if you're the panel and I'm the CEO... We can work these things out and come to a position where we're like, okay, let's try this. And if you, if you want to go by the incrementalism, then we see that that's okay. Just like in, in uh, Colorado, already has proven that the cannabis model is, is fine, right? So we can start with the cannabis model and move that in. And then we can say, all right, well, let's put cocaine into this model and then see how that goes. If you want to be incremental about it, I'm fine with that. The cannabis model... It, the, the problem is the innocuous negative effects are just, it's just really, the, there's almost nothing. There's so f little to fall on. But, yeah, but we don't make that case with alcohol or, or right. tobacco. That's true. But tobacco is not a good one because it's a long, slow death. <laughs> as, long as, it's, yeah. as long as it takes a long time, yeah. we can accept it. I mean, it. that's okay. how we look at it. It's almost like what we're but doing to look the at how much that costs. I mean, yeah. the, the cost of, oh, yeah. of tobacco is extraordinary on, on our healthcare system. Oh, no doubt about it. Right. And when you think about alcohol, that's the real argument because alcohol is one of the easiest drugs to kill yourself with. Mm -hmm. People, I think there's a staggering number. I think it's like 10,000 people drink themselves to death every year just in this country, which is really pretty shocking. And that doesn't count drunk driving, uh, alcohol-related violence, and all the other things that go along with it. The problem with making heroin or cocaine, with decriminalizing it, but then go after, going after the dealers, is then, well, okay, if these people get hooked on it, where are they going to get it then? Well, they have to go to a doctor. I mean, right. it's just the way we have to do it. So but it becomes that, treatment. But it then becomes exactly right. like Florida. But, but remember what we do know. We do know that every million spent on the demand side reduces by 100 kilograms. Right. So we have to keep focusing on education. Mm -hmm. I don't... If those people that got hooked on Oxy and became heroin addicts, if they had the education that this was the path they were going to go on, you got to believe that a significant percentage of them wouldn't have gone that path. Yeah. I mean, now we're all aware of it. And I know plenty of people now that the doctor says, here's some oxy. And they're like, no, no, no. 
No, give me something else. What do you do with people that are so fucking dumb? They just want to party. You got. You, I mean, some of those things you, you got to let you them just, party. Just like you got to let them drink themselves to death. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Oof. That's a hard pill for people to swallow, but it's better than putting them in a prison cell. Yes, it is. What do you got going on, Jamie? Drinking too much can, excessive alcohol use led to approximately 88,000 deaths and 2.5 million years of potential life lost. What does that mean? I guess, okay. like you're saying, drunk driving accidents. In the United States, 2.5 million years of oh, people's lives. Um, got it. That's a weird fucking statistic. From 2006 to 2010, shortening the lives of those who died by an average of 30 years. Yeah, okay, so... It definitely okay. That's life lost, yeah. meaning you um, you drink yourself into an early grave. That's a weird thing to argue, but the eighty-eight thousand deaths over a period of uh, four years—that's that's harsh. But that's what we were saying. I mean, that it's essentially a little bit more than what but, I was saying. But we also know the solution to that, or a solution to a significant portion of that: education, education. And legalization of marijuana. Yeah, that so would those help things a lot. That we empirically yeah. know, we know those will improve mm -hmm. the situations. But instead, we continue to do things we know don't work. Right. Right. So I'm a scientist. I am interested in what works. I'm going to argue for what works, and someone else can argue against it. But that's going to be what I continue to argue for. I don't have an emotional position. Or, or on it, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm following the evidence. Right. We we, we literally know these things. Well, not only that, there's also a drug that is illegal that has a significant impact on addiction. It's called ibogaine, and ibogaine, which is being used for, in treatment facilities all throughout South America and Mexico with massive positive results. Uh, is illegal in this country for no apparent reason. And it's, yeah, I've heard that the people that do that are just like, that's it. As soon as they take it, yeah. they're like, I don't want it anymore. It's completely yeah. out. Well, it, it rewires the way your brain concentrates or the way your brain is affected by these substances. It rewires addiction. I mean, I'm not the one to explain how it works. Aubrey will be in this week, and he'll probably be the best person to do it. I've got another one. This is from the Washington Post. This is a statistic of how many Americans drink every week. Jesus. Uh, you want to read that? What this in little the fuck? thing right here. Up to 10 drinks per day. What? Uh, up to, it says the top 10% of American adults, 24 million of them, consume an average of 74 drinks per week or a little more than 10 drinks per day. Holy Aggregate, shit. Compared to about 30% that don't drink at all. Holy and shit. And how many of them are doing that because cannabis is illegal? Well, I'm sure quite a few, but quite a few, you know, look, there's a lot of, obviously, you know, I'm a marijuana enthusiast. I love it. I think it's awesome. I, I want to spark one up right now thinking about it. I'm a big fan. Uh, but some people don't like it. They don't like the abrasively introspective properties of cannabis. They don't like the paranoia. They don't like all the vulnerability feelings that you get from it. I like those. Those are good for me. My personality, I have, I'm, I'm too type A, aggressive, you know, I, I'm good with a, 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 a substance, uh, a compound uh, that sort of like calms that down and mellows me out and gives me a different perspective. I enjoy it and I think it's good for people. I really do. I think a lot of the things that people associate with the negative aspect of cannabis, the, particularly the paranoia, I think that's good. I really do. I do. I think we need to feel more vulnerable. I think more, feeling more vulnerable is better for you because it enhances a sense of community and friendship and love 
in a lot of ways, and it, it, it bonds people together. I think this idea that you're an individual, that you are, uh, you know, you're a lone rebel out there kicking ass and taking names, you're doing it all by yourself, that's all eroded instantaneously by cannabis. It just said, no, 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 you're a talking monkey on a spinning ball flying through infinity, you fuckhead. And you're like, ah, I'm fucking scared, I'm going to die someday. <laughs> like, I couldn't agree with you more. I think those are really important qualities for our entire race, the human race. I think they it enhances more community type feelings and thoughts and i think that's the opposite of what some drugs like stimulants do stimulants i've always avoided stimulants i'm not a fan other than coffee um i've never really tried them but i've seen their effect on other people and i've read about their effects and it's not what i'm looking for i don't want to be cocky i don't yeah i'm trying to fight whatever urges my body and my personality have to sort of lean towards that but I think that people that get involved with speed, people that get involved with coke, those are people that are like unduly confident. It's I think that's a bad drug for society, and it's a it's a drug that is very selfish in its effects. Like the 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 impact that it has on people, they become really selfish and nasty. And I'm not into that. I, I think that alcohol for some people is a is an escape from the reality that they find themselves in and they don't know how to get out. And I think education, like we were talking about before, allowing people to have access to the stories and the, the, ta the, the consequences that other people have experienced from taking that drug will help them. What kept me from doing coke when I was young was having friends that had problems with it. And that educated me. I was like, fuck, I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to have that happen to me. I see what's happening to this person. Some people don't get exposed to that. And instead, before they know it, they're already in it. They're trying it when they're 15. Next thing you know, they like it too much. Next thing you know, they're looking forward to doing that because it provides some sort of an escape from the pressure of the consequences of pursuing a dream, of chasing down life, or of not having a direction. That's another one. Not having, like you were saying, the, the identity that you're focusing on, whether it's this gentleman that was a photographer or someone else that wants to be an athlete or someone else that wants to be an author, whatever it is, it's one thing that you're chasing. If you don't have that thing, this, this sort of futility of life is very overwhelming to some people, and they want to escape that pain, the pain of not knowing what the fuck you're doing. And I think some of that, I mean, this is going to go way out there, but I think some of that goes back to the hunter-gatherer genes that we have in our, in, our, in our own bodies. I think we're, in a lot of ways, we're a prisoner to the needs of the past. And the needs of the past were we were very goal-oriented. You had to go out there, you had to pick the right amount of foods that you could eat, you had to hunt the animals or catch the fish, and that was the goal. And we were very goal-oriented in that way. You had to go out there and do that, you had to work hard, and then through those goals you get this feeling of satisfaction. Well, when you're just getting food and it's, it comes to you when your job involves doing something that's not rewarding in any way, shape, or form, and this is what you have to do to get that food, you've sort of taken out all the natural reward systems that our bodies are designed to, to sort of gravitate towards. And unless you find a passion, unless you find an art or a craft or a trade or some sort of a thing that excites you mentally and stimulates your creativity and stimulates your ambition – you're left lost, 
And there's a lot of people that are just left lost and unfulfilled and unsatisfied. And I think those types of people gravitate towards alcohol and a lot of other drugs as an escape. And that's a part of the problem with society was how we view drugs. We view drugs as an escape rather than an enhancement or rather than a perspective in, in, enhancer. We, we view them as, oh, this guy's weak. He needs a drug. Yeah, I, I, I think. I think you're spot on. Uh, I don't know how you can argue that, but it, it like ties all together. So I, I know you sound like liberal. Well, I, I mean, you plurally sound like liberal hippies when you like start putting mm -hmm. all these things together. But these things really do tie in together. So you have the alcoholism because people aren't finding their identities. So we should be doing things to like help people create identities if we want a safer environment, right? Yeah. So it's not about taking those people and put them in, into prisons. As you articulate it, it's about finding that passion or educating them to do something. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you want to help or police or whoever want to help, you have to be addressing those kind of issues and i think so people one thing we've noticed uh, throughout uh, throughout human history is that when um things are really tough and there's no resources right the the leaders of the oppressed like so say uh, it's really easy to use um, uh, black segregated neighborhoods right now. You know, it's an easy example. Well, it's not just easy. It's an it's awesome obvious. example. So, it's a very good example. So the masculine members of a society that can't achieve something, they turn to making everything about masculinity and dominance and, and accepting of, the, of that lower realm. And they start to treat uh, intelligence and education as effeminate or or weak, and and so you have a that's that that plays into the culture of where you have the guns and everybody has to you know the disrespecting culture and this is my corner kind of culture. So we have those kind of benefits that are a factor also in in leveling the playing field for everybody and contributing. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing right now is we're building a. a studio like this in Baltimore and and it's called uh, Radio Revolver and that'll be my shameless plug so go fund me Radio Revolver and we still need a few more thousand dollars to figure fix everything up what are you doing so we are making it so we have a video recording like Skype session we have the, a podcast the whole setup like this for with eight mics and we're trying to set everything up. We have local artists that are painting everything in the inside. Let me stop you right now. Mm -hmm. Eight people are going to talk over each other. Never have more than two. Okay. Okay. We've made that mistake many times. We have these fight companions with four, and they're my best friends, and we're all fucking yelling out over each other. I tried to watch one of those the other day. I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting a headache. Sometimes they're, they're, those are pretty fun. Oh, they're You guys fun. are loose. Oh, we get hammered. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're ridiculous. But I'm just saying, if you have eight people, sure. really, it's like... You ever heard that expression, one, um, t one boy, one boy's work, two boys, half boy's work? Meaning that like, if you have two young kids mm -hmm. together and they're working on something, they're just going to start talking shit and it's not going to get done. <laughs> One's going to go one, that way. Yeah. <laughs> if you have one kid that's digging a hole, he's going to actually get that job done. But if you have like four people, nothing gets done. And that, that, that's really the case. And okay. I'm definitely going to write yeah. that down. It's eight people's too many. So one of the people that I met was uh if you ever heard serial podcast jamie do you know that one that sure was? so okay you listen to that no i don't but okay. i'm aware of it so the first season is about a nod saeed who's wrongfully imprisoned right now in maryland uh, still right so his definitely wrongfully 
I think so. Uh, well, so regardless of whether you get a point of whether he did it or not. I'm you, honestly unaware of the case. What, what was right. he accused of? So uh, in high school at 17 of murdering his ex-girlfriend, uh, a classmate at Woodland High High School. Um, the evidence, regardless of, of whether somebody wants to argue about whether he actually did it or not, the evidence is, is, is extremely clear that you do not have the evidence to put this individual in jail. Period. Okay. It's not there. His best friend is the partner with me for Radio Revolver. And we ended up being connected for because I helped out on that podcast for a while. And, you know, we've, we have this community that we form now. So he's helping me with this. And this is an example of how you use your privilege and sensationalism. So I was sensationalized by what I said before, right, by the, the cops hitting people and all the things they mm-hmm. did. And, and probably what I'm most proud of is that I instantly switched from that sensationalism to how we fix things and what the reform measures are. And we don't even talk about that sensationalism anymore. But don't you think the sensationalism was important because it, it brought you to people like me? It's critical. Yeah. Right. So... The successfulness of turning that around into something productive, part of that is is this radio revolver. So if you have privilege and you have an advantage or something, what you have to do is you have to build platforms for other people, build structure so that other people can rise, not just for yourself. And the idea behind this is we'll we'll have the network. So it ended up being turnkey. It's in a, a room that anybody can come in at any time. And if the community, the community members, we already have them tied in. I think we're, we're going to have a problem with who we cut out versus who we're going to let in. Mm. And we're creating the entire infrastructure under one umbrella for them to come in and have their voices heard and get their message out there. They can build a podcast. They can build a video, uh, t- like a TV show type of thing. And th- none of this is ever going to cost any of them anything. And if they succeed and we end up getting to a point where we're in the red, then we just start taking all the profits and distributing them out to whoever you know proportionally has the podcast that does the best or whatever. And, and, but the point of that is, is, is that you have that, that is going to enable at least 10 to 20 identity projects. So somebody else has to come in and do the other end of that. Take whatever you have and and do that same kind of thing. If you have money, then we can take the money and we can do something good with that. If you have that skill, then you can come into a place like we're building or a place like Penn North and pass that on. That is really what we have to do as an individual level. And if so, I would always love it if people would help me out with radio revolvers so we can get that finished. So you're, what you're going to do is you're going to put together a podcast. And through that podcast, you're going to have people tell their stories. You're going to expose the Whatever rest of the world to the the plight of these inner cities and the the positive stories about people rising out of them and your friend the photographer yep. and a bunch of other people that you're going to get exposed to. So I think one of the most important things for a young person is to believe that they can somehow or another be successful. Um, I remember when, when I was young, we were poor. I always identified with being a poor person and I never thought that I would be anything other than a poor person because I would see people that were wealthy and they've, they always felt so different than me. They always felt so, anyone who is successful, I shouldn't even just say wealthy, just a normal person, like, you know, like someone who lives in a normal house with, uh, you know, a garage and that, you know, like, wow, that's a, that's a person that the America aspires to. They feel different than you. If you're from a broken home, if you're from poverty and my case obviously was nothing in comparison to the extreme poverty that a lot of people face. But I still remember feeling really insecure 
and really um, disconnected from successful people. I think that mindset is very difficult to overcome. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to believe that you can achieve something. It's very difficult to believe that you can rise from, no matter where you are, if you continue to work and you continue to pursue your goals and you, you can avoid all the pitfalls of the negative aspects of society, you can do better. You can do better and you can feel satisfied in that. And to give people these opportunities to see people who have done the very thing that you're aspiring to do is massively beneficial because it gives them sort of a, like a little bit of a blueprint. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's exactly the point. When you say these things, I, I mean, you may as well just be me saying them. Uh, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, it's critically important that, that we set these up for people and and they can do that and they do that now and it just reminds me when you said that like they come up to my house and like that's like success to them and, and that's what I am I'm a dude with a single family home and a garage and not really yeah I don't have any money but but, but, but that but is honestly all huge. anybody ever really needs right. and wants I mean you could get a giant ass fucking house but let me tell you something at the end of the day it's just your house you know that it's just where you live. It's, if it's, is it comfortable? Is it safe? Yeah, that's what everybody really wants. Yeah, definitely. That's really what it's all about. And one of the most positive aspects of doing this podcast is running into people that I've met that said, hey, man, I've been doing stand-up comedy for three years now. I'm actually a working comedian. I, I, I did it from listening to your podcast. I knew that I could do it because you told me that anybody can do it if you just try. That you, I, I used to suck, and I tell everybody, I, always, I was fucking terrible. You, but you keep chipping away at it and just listening to your recordings and all that jazz. I've run into a million fucking people that have started doing jujitsu now. I mean, it's, I, I mean, it's not a million, but it's not countable anymore. I've ran into so many people that, hey, man, I just got my purple belt, started listening to you guys. You know, now I'm competing. My, my, my lifestyle is so much healthier. I eat cleaner. Everything's better. My life is just, I'm, I used to be depressed. It's so much more positive. So I take... Great satisfaction. I would say pride, but it's not the right word. It's great satisfaction. It feels awesome to talk to people that have looked at this little sort of blueprint that I've laid out and said, look, anybody could do this. You can do this. Like whatever patterns that you're following because the people that you're around are in these negative patterns, you don't have to follow those patterns. It's one of the beautiful things about social media and the beautiful things about the internet is you can kind of choose what you follow. I mean, you could go... And just follow negative stuff all day long. You could concentrate on negative bullshit. And you could be one of those people who goes on Twitter and just bombs on people and shits on people all day. And that, that's going to be your point of focus. But you're not going to get any better at anything doing that. You're not going to have a better life. You're not going to feel better. You're not going to be happier. You're not going to spread any, any, anything beneficial, anything positive to anybody. But you can take a choice to not do that. And... A lot of times you need to see that someone else has done that in order to help you do that. I, mean, I hope you're inspiring others because you're kind of inspiring me right now. Like thinking about how many identity projects that you led, even though they were maybe not even been obvious to you because you've gone and, and used this platform to do these things. I think it's highly honorable of you that you use this platform so that I can talk about these things, about BLM, Black Lives Matter, and about police reform and things like that. It, that's like the, the typical like prototype of what what we're talking about you you were doing great work by by doing that well it's helping me a lot too honestly i mean i think everyone's life is a constant journey you're you're I mean, unless you just stay sedentary and you don't go anywhere and you don't take in any new data your your life is all about reevaluating the way you think 
or evaluating it or enhancing it or adding to it or removing some negative aspects of the way you think. And one of the best ways that I've found to do that is expose myself to interesting people like you or like any of the other people that I've, I've had the pleasure and the opportunity to, to talk to on this podcast. You get this. I mean, I've had three hour conversations with 800 fucking well, not 800 people, but 800 times. And having those kind of conversations, it forces you to think. It forces you to, like, one of the things that Eddie Huang was saying that really resonated with me is that he likes to write. He writes every day. And one of the things that, the reasons why he likes to write is that it makes him solidify his own thoughts. He thinks about his own thoughts and it really sort of, like, it allows him to really, really kind of, examine them and, and and go in depth as to how he really truly feels about something and really get a, a cleaner perspective instead of just uh, i think a lot of people me included i've been guilty of this in the past we operate on momentum we just get a path you're on it for some whatever reason and then you just sort of stuck and you just sort of behave that way and think that way and, and you don't ever examine it you never stick and writing allows you to really pause and look at that podcasting does the same in a lot of ways it allows me to pause and really think about some of the things that i've attached myself to or not attached myself to. Yeah, and it's recorded you're yeah. never going to be able to hide it's not it. just recorded this shit's live <laughs> right so it is you it is it's you it's who you are you know and or for good or for bad and you get to see negative aspects of the way you think and the way you talk and then you get to see the repercussions from those and you get to consider like why did i think that way was i just was it just a knee-jerk reaction? Was it just, uh, you know, was I tired that day? Was I not respecting the medium? Was I uh, not respecting the power of these thoughts and these conversations? Most likely a combination of all those things. But through the personal growth that has uh, been afforded me by the podcast, it's helped me in as much as it's, it's helped anybody. It's, it's helped me tremendously. And having these kind of conversations with people like you are a giant part of that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to take that kind of stuff. But never really into that. Uh, but like, I don't know. I can't. I can't sing your praises enough for having that kind of mentality and being uh, the alpha male that is vulnerable and lets other people see that it's okay. Those things are important. Uh, it's okay for for the tough guys to let their guard down. And be introspective and to be people that are willing to help and, and reach out. It's, it's entirely admirable. Um, like Chank is another person that I've gotten close to. You've had him on here, say, right? His name Chanky. is Jank. Jank. So I know. say his name he, right. He, yeah, I'm glad that you say it right. He, <laughs> he, he jokes about that, how like people that have known him his whole life say, it say wrong. his name. So you're yeah. right. It's Jank, right? Like yeah. a J, right? Yeah. Well, the Young Turks, what, what they've done is they've developed this sort of uh, alternative media platform that's outside of the mainstream media, but it has arguably as much impact. When you look at what they've been able to do on YouTube, and they're one of many. You know, there's a lot of people that are pushing unusual ideas on the internet. Um, the Amazing Atheist is another one. I've really enjoyed a lot of his stuff lately. Um, TJ is a fucking really bright guy, and he puts out some really interesting, well thought out videos. You got to pee or something? No. What was that? What's the no, it's giving a website address. Oh, okay. uh, just talking about Chank. Uh, we got Jank. Jank. Jesus, he's going. Uh, I got to go see him this week. Just don't call him Chank. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, putting our money's where our mouth is. We got locked up this year. You guys uh, got locked up in DC. 
arrested. Of you got arrested? Jamie's got the pictures of it. Jenk did too. You got arrested mm-hmm. together. Yeah, we got arrested oh. together. What'd you get arrested um, for? For sitting in for a democracy spring. Is that uh, serving or protecting? Um, How does that, that work? That would have been serving. Do you? Um, do you, well, you yeah. Do you guys get um, a rec- arrest records for that? Okay, so did I guess you I, still get in Canada. I guess Jenk does a um, real a legit arrest record. Um, so I fought it because it was in D.C. Right. Well, because it's close to you. It's close to me. I can fight right. it. So they ended up dropping the charges on me. Okay. Um, we had got a phone call that there was no way they were going to put me in a chance to speak in a uh, recorded public forum like That's that. That's what they said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, now, uh, so they dropped my you, cases. What were you protesting? The getting money out of politics. So um, the, we're not... People like Cenk and I are not just talking out of our asses on this. We, we mean it. Right. Um, and so we went and we participated in the march and got uh, arrested in Washington, D.C. And why'd you get arrested for? What was so, the charge? Uh, like loitering or some bullshit. Uh, I forget how they completely worded it. And so it's because you were protesting in a public area and blocking traffic or something? Yeah, like that's what, what they said. Uh, there was nobody trying to go in or out of the Capitol. And that's where we were. Right, but they wouldn't be able to if they did want to because well, you guys we were moved. in the way? Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of loitering, right? But that does get attention to what sure. you're trying to it's say. It's the largest mass arrest in D.C. history. It was like uh, 200 and some of us that got arrested the first day. Wow. Like 450 overall. Um, so we, guys, have, we have some good pictures of it if Jamie... Their website's not working. I don't the, uh, it's Maywood Photography, M-A-E-W-O-O-D. Oh, sh- that, that's my fault. I'm sorry. Um, so... What were the cops like when they arrest you? They're like, I'm sorry, this is bullshit. We got to arrest you, or they're being dicks. Some of them were still being dicks, unbelievably, considering it was uh, when you see this crowd. So they were treating you like an actual criminal, even though it's pretty obvious you're trying to campaign against something that's something that nobody really thinks is a good thing money in politics. Right. The lieutenant said, Hey, I'm glad that you guys are out here doing that. Really? The lieutenant said that? Right. Holy shit. But these are Capitol Police. Um, I've sang their praises before, uh, but they don't face a lot. So they had, there's, there's Cenk. So th- that's, uh, Captain Ray Lewis. He also was arrested. And who uh, he is he? wears his uniform. To, he's a retired Philadelphia, uh, police officer. And he wore his uniform. Yeah, he and does. Got, and got arrested in his uniform. Mm-hmm. Jesus they, And they took his sign and threw it away and they charged What does it say? Him. What does the sign say? Massive civil is scratched out disobedience is next warning massive disobedience is next what does that mean well because i'm uh, assuming what he means by this but right now the disobedience is civil right right so we're protesting we're doing things like this but like i'm flabbergasted that the black community in these neighborhoods hasn't really said enough is enough yet like the idea that we are they have children and family members dying in these streets. Well, they're probably scared to get arrested, man. They are, but I, I just there, there's a breaking point that's coming, and that's that's what he's trying to say is, and, and what I've tried to to hold exp- on, don't scroll. What's up with the dude with the nose ring? The fuck's going on there? Oh, he's a uh, he's an actual uh, I can't remember what tribe he's from, and he participates in a lot of these things. And what about the dude with the musket? Scroll down there, Jamie. <laughs> I, I don't know him. It's I like think a, he has a side. I don't know what that sign. is. <laughs> it's wood. It looks like a musket when I was only seeing the tip of it. What? Yeah. The tip of the... I thought it was a... Just a tip? A musket. That's all? Tip. Yeah. Never just a tip. Don't fall for that. Uh, I don't know what you're saying. 
dollars in what does that scroll down? Dollars in politics, scratch, scratch out. So it's a, essentially just a bunch of people standing in a place where the government didn't think you should be able to stand. Right. And we kind of keep drawing attention to this money in politics because I really think that's the root. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. root of everything. We can't end the drug war because of this. We can't right. uh, move anything forward. We can't do you know, police reform because mm-hmm. of this. Democracy spring, they're calling it. Yeah, that was the one day. Different groups did different days. So it was a whole week long. This was the, the first day was the biggest day. And you'll have me in handcuffs at the end eventually. Hmm. But so. Uh, so the, how, much, how long did you have to stay in jail for? Just the, uh, the night. Oh, how annoying. Well, it, was, people snoring? it wasn't a real jail. There were so many people that it was just like they were keeping us in like animal pens, it felt like. Uh, so we would just be like penned off. Like they, they took us to a different oh, place really? and had like uh, f- like fences, like portable fences. And they would like put you like. So it's not like you really couldn't get out. You could get out if you wanted to. It was just... I guess I could have if I really wanted to. I wasn't going to go for, right. for an escape charge. <sighs> this is so silly. But, it seems like so. It's a dumb way to handle it. Everybody's smiling, <laughs> getting handcuffed. Jesus right. Christ! So as you see, it's a pretty white crowd. White uh, as fuck. So I think that helps on the way yeah. the, the police act. It's like some people are just psyched to be hanging out with Jenk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's weird. So I mean, that's an example of another thing. I mean, you can go and you can participate in these things. Uh, mm-hmm. So if that is a passion of yours. I think that's another identity thing that we have. You can you can go and these groups. There's all these groups out there, and like you're saying, that these people feel lost and they're turning to to other things. But we have all these things out there, and and if you don't have one, just create one. Like they're out there, like the TYT family, like your family, like Black Lives Matter. We have tons of of movements going on that that you can do something positive with, no matter who you are. Okay, so tell us one more time what's the name name of this podcast and when do you hope this thing's going to start so name of the podcast the, the radio right now is called it's called radio revolver and that's just the umbrella why radio revolver is that really about sure. guns <laughs> yeah revolver? we had that place so I, revolving door like a prison oh. cell is how i i envisioned it they mm. wanted to use like a gun logo and i was like no 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 no, you can't do that radio revolver podcast network Right, so here's some of the friends that I've made that are activists around, and there will definitely be ones that are in there. We were doing a serious show when we took that picture. And so the donating is uh, for equipment and for rental space. And well, all we, that we have this, the space started. was donated by Saad. It's a basement of his house, uh, all blocked off and, and done. So that's not an issue. We have that done. Um, so what do you need? Uh... We're still just getting the last bit of equipment. Uh, we have some of the local artists painting the walls now. Oh, great! And uh, and so we're That's close. Cool. We don't, I mean, like maybe three thousand dollars, and I'm and uh, and we're we're set. Well, let me know when you guys launch, and I will absolutely sure. tweet it out and let everybody cool. be aware of it. The first one is going to so again part of the part of the thing that we're going to do is we just take advantage of of me, right, and the publicity. Mm-hmm. So the first one is going to be a joint project with undisclosed who is uh affiliate with serial story and all and, and that one's going to be uh, misconduct uh, which is going to be one of the series we have so there's going to be multiple podcasts oh, okay one of them is going to be misconduct and then you'll have like the photography one or you'll have a public health one like doc Lawrence brown is is going to do a public health one so you're essentially building like a whole station whole station okay great right and so everybody that wants in, you know, as long as you learn what you're doing and everything, you'll be able to have your voice heard in whichever manner you want. That's a great idea because, you know, this is one of the easiest ways to get a message out and a message that, you know, you, you when you hear someone talk, man, 
and you you hear their words and you get to know them through the hours and hours of conversations, you get to know them in a really deep, intimate way. You're a yeah. shining example. I mean, you walk around and everybody... To, to you, weird. they know you. People right. hug me. I don't even know. I'm like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Right. So the first one's called Misconduct, which is going to be a series. And the, I'm going to do the first one. And it's going to be uh, The Killing of Freddie Gray. So we're, what we're going to do for that is go through the story. And when we first go through the story, the first episode will start. And uh, we'll start telling what happened. Like, so these cops are in this neighborhood and Freddie Gray is in this. And then we go, but wait, why does it look this way? And then so uh, like somebody like Doc Brown will come in and we'll go over through the history of segregation, how, how the neighborhoods are formed the way they are, why the cops are all white, why the citizens are all black. And, and we'll go explain that story. And then the next episode, I'll start over again, start telling the story. And when we'll hit the next hurdle, which will you know, be something like, well, why are they going after him for the drugs? You know, why are they chasing him? Mm-hmm. So, so then we'll break down the history of the laws and why, the, why that is done the way it is, what policing philosophies have led to this, until we finish out the entire story and everybody can understand the nuance to what happened behind the murder of Freddie Gray. All right, man. Well, listen, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And we'll definitely want to do that thing with my friend Justin. Yep. If he's down, we'll have a, a, a fucking gun control hoedown up in this bitch. I'm certainly down. And uh, we'll definitely promote your podcast as soon as it launches, Radio Revolver. So go to GoFundMe.com forward slash Radio Revolver. Go and contribute, and you can follow Michael on Twitter, Michael Wood Jr. Is that what it is on Twitter? Michael A. Wood Jr. Michael A. Wood Jr. on Twitter. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate it. Always good seeing you you again. We'll do it again. Yes. Definitely. Thank you, folks. We'll be back soon. Bye. Big kiss.